welcome to yet another episode of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. Uh, this one is going to be one that's near and dear to my heart. We've had several people request the Baron's Racer episode. They, this has been a species that's been requested since the beginning. And my um, editor, Russ, you know, kept telling me, don't do it till the book's out. Uh, people won't buy the book. Well, people have certainly bought the book. And now that that's done, it's time to do some South American dipsided fun. So our guest for this episode is going to be Chris Sharp. And if you know anything about Bear and I in North America, you know Chris's name. So uh, real excited to get into that later on. But per our usual, you know, way of going about this whole thing we call our podcast, uh, we've got our banter. And to do the banter, I have with me my partner in crime, Clint. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, Zach. Good to see you, buddy. How you Thank doing? Thank you, sir. I am fantastic. The semester is dead. Sorry, done, <laughs> which also means dead. Um, I'm in that weird purgatory time between the semester being over and Christmas holiday family stuff hitting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I literally woke up today. It's been about a week since we've been out and was kind of like, what the hell happened? How did I get here? What was the past 15 weeks? <laughs> so anyway, but yeah, uh, definitely happy to be here tonight. So that's all I have to say on that one. Good, good. I agree with you there, my friend. Yes. So per our, you know, new way of doing things, first our updates, I guess. Uh, My updates are I'm currently trying to get a tally on what is still in the collection at my house. Um, I had so many things hatched this year and was moving them here, there, and everywhere. You got a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. Other people got a bunch of stuff from me, and I realized, like, I, I, I had a general idea of what the holdbacks were, but um, I did some work in the North Carolina Museum, and I was stuck in a car for, like, 10 hours driving down to Raleigh, and I was zonking out looking at the mountains, and I was thinking, like, how many snakes do we have now? It was one of those moments which all snake people have, but I literally couldn't remember what had moved here, there, and everywhere, so I've been tallying everybody cleaning up everyone, getting everybody into brumation that was kind of lagging behind. Um, and so, you know, that that's one update. I may also, for the first time in my life, have Christmas snake babies, um, <laughs> which is kind of fun. We have a second clutch. One of the false water cobras, um, she laid her clutch, her first clutch late, and she laid a second clutch end of September, beginning of October, somewhere in there. And um, I, I was I was up here at campus, and I thought, did those eggs hatch? And I called my grad student, uh, Mac, and asked her, do, do we have babies on the ground yet? And she said, no, they're going to be hatching around Monday. Well, that's Christmas. So nice. there you go. A little Christmas dips added miracle, um, potentially. <laughs> uh, so, you know, there's that. And then uh, other final things here at the school. Um Pay, who I've talked about literally since the beginning of the podcast. Uh, when, when the podcast began, Pay was starting as my grad student. Um, they have since defended successfully and graduated with their master's degree. And uh, Pay's project was awesome. It was the one I've talked about a bunch here where we formulated the snake sausage diet for indigo snakes uh, and uh, pay defended. Um, we're now working on a pub, but we're going to actually try to get a recipe out that people can use. But the cool thing about it is the products that went in 
to the sausage. Like they're all stuff you can buy at a specialty meat store. I think it was pork, rabbit, and alligator were the main ingredients with just the organic casings that we bought off of Amazon. So if you, you know, are a hunter and you grind up some deer, like my family did here in West by God, and you've got the grinder, you can make yourself some snake sausages too. And, um, it has the nutritional profile of a, I don't want to say it is a snake, but it is, it's lean like snakes for an Ophiophagus snake. And we know that at least the indigo snakes, uh, Gribos and the Hydrodonases, the falsies here, they gobbled them down like nothing. And we did a cost benefit analysis too. And they were with, with the price of freaking rats going up, 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 up. Um, these things came in at a nice, nice value. So we hope to get that paper out shortly. Um, shortly in academia means within the next two years, by the way. So please don't <laughs> think that's going to come out in the next week or so. Um, so there is that. And then I did, um, I think I mentioned this briefly, but some people actually messaged me about it. They wanted to hear updates and things. So what the heck? Uh, 2024 is my hognose snake year. Yeah, and it is. Yes, it is. I'm looking forward to and that. I, I put together my, um, my group of students here to help me gather up all the lit and we're going to be doing field work and a bunch of captive uh, experiments. And I'm, I'm thrilled to death to get that role. And that's just going to be fun. So everything's set for 2024 uh, to be a banner year. We just got to make it. So, so that's my updates. What are yours? All right. Well, <laughs> it's not really been the end of anything, you know, for me on this end. <laughs> Um, we, of course, we're in the Christmas season. So, you know, uh-huh. having a retail store, we're, we're staying pretty busy, staying pretty moving. Um, and which is always good, always exciting. Um, and so it, the floor is, is certainly keeping us busy. And as I mentioned on the last episode, this is also my planning period, so mm-hmm. to speak. And I mean, I've gotten in deep with it you know, now. <laughs> Um, we're talking about a 26 tab Excel spreadsheet with formulas carrying to each one. And I mean, it's, it's really, it's great because after having all of this data now, I, I was just speaking to Steve before he left today. And I said, it's allowed me to get into this business the way I've been trained. When it nice. comes to, you know, all the mm-hmm. looking at your expenses, where are the margins? What do we need to shift? What predicting if you've got 15 categories that uh, 15 different sales categories and you're planning your next year, what increase are you expecting from these different categories? What categories aren't going to move as much? Ball mm-hmm. pythons, for example, I don't expect them to be as strong next year as they were this year, things like that. So um, that's been that's been fun for me as nerdy as that sounds it's who oh, i'm in spreadsheets yay yes um, but so that's been great but um you know also in store it's we we're making some other big organizational kind of shifts that really going to help us out um and here's the thing that for most people they hear this and it's like who cares i just bought 40 feet of pallet racks <laughs> for those who know what that is, it's basically shelving systems that you can put complete pallets on mm-hmm. of, of products. And I mean, that's going to do wonders for organization in the warehouse. I'm so excited about that, which then opens up more room for us to have uh, 
spaces to put cages together, to build bioactives at a faster rate, to, you know, all these things that just help us keep costs down for the products that our customers are really enjoying. So, so that's, that's got me pumped. Uh, we've got all of the colubrid breeders down now. I shut off nice. all the heat last, uh, last week and now I've dropped it to the, you know, fifties this week. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, a break <laughs> to <laughs> say the least. Uh, but it's, it's always something, you know, it's always yep. something because just today, uh, our animal care specialist was on vacation last week. So, you know, things were being taken care of, but at a much more rapid rate, but we weren't having to feed colubrids and things like that. So it was softer. I went into the ball python room, um, just a few hours ago to, to pair some things up and it's uh, like every other tub. Here's a stuck shed. Here's a stuck shed. <laughs> and it's because now the furnace is running Yep, in that room. It's sucking out all that humidity. And I'm like, and, and he wasn't there <laughs> misting every other day, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing like he normally is. So it's always something, you know, it's always something to, oh, yeah. to do, but, um, but, but all in, I mean, it, things are, are, are going very well, um, going in the directions that we want. And, you know, I really don't have any gripes, I guess, you know, yeah. that, that's, that's good. You know, I'm looking forward to, getting the holiday in and, and done, spend some time with the family. And yep. then I'm really just, I'm pumped to move to 24, you know, because yep. now we've got so much to compare to, you know, this full mm-hmm. calendar year to compare to, to really see all the changes we've implemented, what they can do, you know? So, Oh yeah, no, totally. So that's kind of where I am. Well, good. It's funny that you brought up the furnace. <laughs> Holy mother. Like I, I swear to God, it's a miracle when I got back from that trip from North Carolina that I didn't have little snake mummies everywhere. Every freaking little hold back in, in the rat, they all stuck sheds, just like what you were talking about. Yes. I, 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 (laughs) winter is something special where you have to use heat. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We, we have um, right next to our television. My wife bought a clock just because we don't have a clock in the, down in our little family room area. And it depicts the humidity, like percent humidity. I've never really had that. And so you're looking at the TV, the nerd that I am, I'm like data. So I'm like glancing down and the humidity in my house went from about 50 to 60%, which still isn't that great, but it's enough, you know, Mm -hmm. ambient to be fine Mm -hmm. down to 30 in four days. Yeah. Like, Literally all of it gone. So, uh, and yeah, I, I just have trays of water sitting everywhere. Like, yeah, yeah, it's got to soak, <laughs> yeah. soak here, soak there. That's so, it. You know, and, it, <laughs> and it's I, I've made a quick change because in the nursery, um, Drew, who works back there, had put several like bamboos, mandarin, so a lot of Asian species that you know typically you want humidity. Well, he had put them on shredded aspen, not really knowing better. Yeah, you know, I go through. And I thought, and this was early in the year, you know, earlier in the year. And I thought, I want to watch it. Let's let's kind of see how things go. And they've done fine, just fine. This week, I, I <laughs> want it all on cocoa fiber. Yeah, get, get everyone changed because it's going to be a problem now. <laughs> yeah, um, but you know, we're out here. Typically, we're in the forty to sixty, uh, sometimes seventy percent humidity range. You know, in uh, our area, so. In that room, it's been fine, but yeah, just just like you, man. I mean, it's I know it's, it's like about to be a problem for them if we don't swap it now. So mm-hmm. that's one of the things he was doing today was getting them moved over just to cool. kind of ward it off. Yep, 
Alrighty, do we want to do our market science update? Yeah, let's get into it. Okay, you want to go first this time? Yeah, I can do that. Okay. So here's what we got, guys. Um, as far as statistical data and what's moving, I'm kind of looking to wait until December closes for that because then hopefully we can get some kind of year-end data as well as add in um, December numbers in there. Uh, but what I can talk about, again, or what I see now as well as what the cyclical trends will be, and I can give a couple recommendations um, out there too. So typically what we're going to see uh, right now, if, you, if you're an online seller and that's primarily what you're doing, uh, you're probably going to see a slowdown. Um, Christmas doesn't tick up animal sales generally online. Um, and a lot of that's going to be due to shipping. And I don't mean the shipping cost. It's the lack of being able to ship. Um, so most breeders, I, I hope the responsible ones anyhow, have pretty much shut down shipping uh, somewhere after Black Friday. They may have a week that they'll do. But uh, usually the last couple weeks of December, shipping halts because it's not necessarily the temperatures that we're afraid of. It's the delays and the lost packages that, I mean, it's, it's almost inevitable. Um, so so that tends to slow down. And a lot of that will continue really from, from now. Um, I'm going to come back to it in a second because I'm going to shift to retail because online I got more things I want to go into with retail, you know, obviously retail shops, you're hopping, you know, because it is animal sales when they can walk in and buy them. They are. Um, if you are a retail shop, suggestion would be, and it may be a little late for this now, but for next year, offer some solid layaway plans because so many people want to buy the cage and the animal for their son, for their daughter, for whoever, but they want it to be a surprise for Christmas. So from Black Friday on, Anything like that, we whether it's a deposit put down or paid in full, we'll hold it all the way up until whatever day is the last day we're open before Christmas, um, so that they can you know make that a surprise. So, kind of a recommendation for you there is if you have like a two week kind of thing on animals or layaway, extend that a little bit during the holidays, and, and it's certainly going to help um, help your business. Uh, also, so the day after Christmas. That kind of starts a little bit of a lull period over the next few weeks. Um, unless you are a establishment that sells gift cards, you can expect those to come rolling in, you know, a decent number of them over the last week of December, first week of January. And the reason is, is because a lot of the gift cards are usually purchased for youngsters to some degree, um, and they're still out of school for a while. So, they come in, they burn them up in that, those first couple of weeks. So don't be surprised for that. Um, but now let's kind of talk about online. What the reason that I said that, you know, they, you see a little bit of a slow up is because of shipping the weather and there's going to be a lot of, of halting. Well, you heard me mention layaways for retail. Well, this is the time that if you're an online seller and you don't take payment plans, consider them because you're not shipping animals anyway. The animals are going to be sitting with you. So it's a good idea to, to work out a payment plan or to ensure that you have shared with your customers that you have no problem continuing to take care of an animal, feed an animal, give it the best care until a shipping window opens, whenever that may be for you. 
Uh, for some people, they're not shipping again until March, April. For others, if the weather is a certain degree, you know, that they mark off as their cutoff, they'll be shipping in January. They'll be shipping in February. But that is something that will help online sales is if you do consider payment plans. Um, and the reason I would push it at you a little harder is come about the last week of January to the second week of February is when this will kick off. And that's when tax season hits guys. And done tax. Um, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it's, you know, the, the weather doesn't always, you know, play nice for us in this hobby when it comes to tax season. But if you put your animals in a position to where they can be purchased during these months, you'll win. I mean, it's going to benefit you. Um, you're going to see that, you know, as I said, online, but especially if you're a vendor, it shows. Um, I kind of have a rule where I try not to do more than one show a month if I can help it. You know, I want that family time. Uh, but January is eh, February, March, April. Yeah, I'll do two, even three shows in a month those months because it's it's going to be a uh, a good time. Um, now, as a colubrid keeper, it's rough because yeah. <laughs> that's when you have the lowest amount of inventory, right? You know, you don't have as many babies available. But uh, but those are the pieces that I really wanted to just kind of throw out there for everyone, and hopefully that it will help make your seasons uh, a little nicer, uh, make things move at a, a pace that you're comfortable with, and uh, and just kind of help you out all in. So that's uh, hey. that's what I've got for the market, man. Cool. All right. Well, I'm. I'm a little pumped about the science update uh, this episode. So a paper was published within the past week, I guess. Um, It it at least hit social media and a couple bigger names in herpetology. Um, Harry Green being one of them shared it. And anytime they share anything, I'm going to zone in on it. And at first I thought this was a paper that had come out already. But then I realized this is building off of a paper that came out uh, a couple years ago, but basically it's by uh, Morgan Skinner et al. Um, so there's three other uh, authors here and it's the title of it is social networks reveal sex and age pattern, social structure in Butler's garter snakes, Thamnophis Butler eye. So uh, if you are a snake nerd and you follow biology of snakes and things that are being published, there's a lot of papers coming out or at least presentations at meetings, discussions, abstracts, all that kind of jazz that that are clearly demonstrating that things like rattlesnakes have a social element to their biology. We have the denning uh, behaviors. We have moms and pups and the whole mom goes somewhere. Pups follow heightened agitation when the moms are on the den with with the pups. So like that's starting to almost become completely accepted. Uh, with garter snakes, there's been some papers that have come out over the past couple years in labs that have shown that when you take neonate garter snakes fresh out of mom, so babies, um, from multiple moms, and you kind of put them all together, you keep them together, you give them multiple hides, and just keep track of who's hanging out with who, that they seem to have preferences for certain individuals, and they essentially, for lack of a better word, form a, form a click or you know, a little snake group. And then they will move as a group from one hide to the other hide to the other hide. And if you take the hide away and leave one baby behind and and let's say it's a group of three, you take away two, that one that's left behind will 
oftentimes remain independent of the other two. You put the other two back, it finds those two, forms the click again. So crazy. Yeah. So that's great. That's cool. But me being a curmudgeon scientist, (laughs) which is what we're trained to be, by the way, people, I was always like, well, what the hell's happening in nature? You know, there's this artificial Mm -hmm. element Mm -hmm. of keeping the snakes and tubs and everything. Well, the badass thing, and that is the correct term here that I'm going to use for the study. (laughs) That's a scientific term. That is a scientific term is that this study was very different. Not that the other study was bad because the other studies would kind of led to this study. So it certainly was good is that this was based off of a 12 year field study using Mark recapture data from the same spot. And so basically what the scientists did is they went out and they captured it. This is associated with, um, a Department of Transportation effort in Ontario, Canada, where there was a 250-square-meter area of potential impact in building a road. And so it, they were sending biologists out to move the snakes, capture the snakes. Whenever you do that, you mark and recapture the animals. So you know, am I catching the same animal over again? Am I not catching the same animal over again? You can use that to figure out the population density. And since they mark them individually – and you recapture them all, you have this wonderful data set where you can, over a 12-year period of time, see how many times you caught Sue at this spot and how many times you caught Pam at this spot, you know, so on and so forth. And then you can then look and see who else was around when you caught Sue or Pam. And so by doing this, I'm not going to get into the statistics or anything because that will, A, bore people, but it's it's kind of neat. They actually used more of a psychological approach than a biological approach, which I actually like when they do stuff like that. They did this really cool thing, which is called a social network analysis. They did not check to see if the snakes were on Facebook or Instagram. It's not that kind of social network. Okay. This was basically you catch snake A, and then you look and see who you caught next to snake A. And if you caught the same two together, you would then note that. And then if you caught the same three together, you would then note that. And by doing this, what they were able to show is that there was a, there was a pattern and the pattern was really cool. Basically as the, as, and it's different between the boys and the girls. So boys would have some sociality when they were, you know, newborns to a certain, not newborns, but juveniles to a certain extent. But as the boys got older, they became more and more antisocial which makes complete sense to me mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> because as I have gotten older, I have wanted to spend less time with people <laughs> and I am a guy, but I'm also a human, not a freaking Butler's garter snake. So it doesn't really equilibrate, but anyway, there's a, there's an element there that, you know, it's kind of fun, but the, the female snakes, that's where it gets super cool because what they found was there were definitely groups of girl snakes that hung out together. And when you looked at the group, you can literally with this type of analysis, figure out, is there a hub? Like, is there one snake that seems to be present? And then you get other snakes aggregating to that individual and to make a long story short, there were hubs and the hubs were older females. And if you think about this, who has like the wisdom mm-hmm. and the, 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 the street knowledge, the marsh knowledge, I don't know what the hell kind of knowledge <laughs> a Butler eye has, but anyway, of the uh, of the habit, it's going to be those older individuals. So it could be that the you know young snakes are identifying somehow. That's a successful snake. I'm going to follow her, and you know if I follow her, I'll find the hibernacula, I'll find the good basking sites, I'll find the the um, predation sites. It could literally be 
an altruistic thing where they just like each other. But what was really cool, and the reason why I like this paper, is I have been able – it's fun. You know all the memes that, that show, like, husbands and their wives, and it's like, oh, this is the face that, that you make when you, like, get permission by your wife to have a snake. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have that relationship with my wife because I'm smart, and I keep the snakes out of her line of sight. So they are in all the places she doesn't go. But in those places, there are lots of snakes. But this was the year that I decided, what the hell? Let's just see what happens. And I, I, I you know, I basically said, like, I want to put my red side of garter snakes by the TV so we can watch them. And to her credit, she was like, I don't care. Fine. Go ahead. So I did it. And I knew about the out the social network stuff with mm-hmm. the snakes in captivity. So I've been, you know, I would watch them. And wouldn't you know it, they're. There absolutely are these two females that doesn't matter what the hell they're doing. One female goes to the far end of the aquarium. The other one immediately follows. They will even do this thing where they travel together, like to to bask. And then when one leaves, the other one leaves. So I buy 100%. Like, I, I think that these animals are way more. There's more going on up in their brains than we want to admit. Um, and that their behavioral ecology is pretty flipping um cool and this is one of those i mean this is going to be one of those papers that when i'm retiring from my career it's going to be required reading in my herpetology class so uh was really really happy with it i'm going to share a copy of a fun um magazine article about it to our facebook page i think and then i'm going to see uh it's open access so i might even send the link to the paper to the Facebook page because we need to use our Facebook page more. And I thought that was a good use for it. Oh, so that's my science yeah. update. Um, that's a good one. I, I, whenever yeah. you had, uh, cause I, you shared this on your personal page, yes. I believe mm-hmm. I saw it and I'm like, I hope this is what he's talking about. Yeah, that's it. Really, really <laughs> neat. Absolutely. And you know, if there's a, a, a species or that you would think has this communal, you know, mm-hmm. kind of societal makeup, it's going to be garters. You know, that would yeah. be the first one that came to mind. For me as well. So that's, that is really neat, though. No, you know, no, this is They've cool. been able to prove it, you know, that it, yeah. it's mm-hmm. – that's – excellent job, Zach. Good article, Thank buddy. you. Well, excellent job, Skinner, et al., too. Fair enough. So there Fair we enough. go. Okay. So now let's move on to our guest. And like I said, pumped. Been wanting to have Chris on the show for quite some time. So uh, we have with us tonight Chris Sharp of Sharpshooter Reptiles. Uh, Chris is out in, I believe, California. Um, so West Coaster, uh, so yeah, how you doing, man? I'm good. How are you guys? Wow, we're excellent. Good, I am good. pumped. Uh, that garter, that garter snake stuff is rad, man. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah Super no, cool. I, I love this stuff. I, I, I really, honest to God, think that right now is a great time to be in herpetology because when I was in college back in the early 2000s, I would hear from my professors like these are the lesser vertebrates. I even since I was little, I've hated when we refer to reptiles and amphibians as lesser. They're just different. They're not mm-hmm. us. Like that's you know. So it's kind of cool that advanced methods of study uh, for things like birds and mammals, we can actually start applying that now. So I think what I love about this is is it's kind of the direction of the study. Yeah. Meaning, so often when it comes to to reptiles, we're studying their kind of biological needs, you know, the the temperatures that they want, the humidity that they want, what they eat and where they live. This is behavioral. 
Yeah. You know, this is the kind of thing that we really get into on the show is these mm-hmm. behaviors. And so, you know, knowing that the, the expansion of study is happening yep. in that direction, that's exciting stuff. Yep. That's really neat. Very, very yeah. much. Okay. So Baron's racers, Chris, let's, let's just get into how you ended up where, where you're at today. So what's your, your background for those of you, um, who, who may not know Chris, uh, yeah, Yeah, go. So, so yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, my story is similar to most, you know, uh, definitely into dinosaurs as a kid, um, (laughs) uh, which then led into crocodilians. Uh, and I remember the zoo actually, uh, it's the zoo my wife works at. I worked there for 11 years. But they had uh, some Chinese alligators when I was a kid, which is like the coolest thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so from, you know, crocodilians on to, you know, just reptiles in general. And I like all kinds of animals. You know, I, I didn't have any reptile pets early, early on. Uh, you know, I had a rabbit and a cat and, you know, a goldfish, that kind of stuff. But um, as soon as I could get snakes, we got a couple snakes and, uh, you know, ball python at the time. Uh, again, this was mid-90s. So really before all the, the morph stuff hit, um, just a normal wild caught covered with ticks kind of ball python, but I love that snake. And, um, she was great. Gave her a stupid, I think I called her, her name was Cleopatra, which is just dumb, but, uh, I just have to laugh at it when I look back yeah. at it, but I had Cleo for a really long time. And, um, the collection was kind of small for quite a while, you know, obviously, uh, you know, I grew up, uh, in a very, uh, well, I won't put a we'll beat around the bush. We're pretty poor growing up. Family yeah. of four with single income. So uh you know, any animal stuff I had, uh I had to, you know, go rake leaves or mow lawns kind yep. of thing to to do my stuff that way. Um as I got older, people were like, Oh, you have a snake, here, here's this turtle, or here's this blue tongue skink, or you know, mm-hmm. so I just amassed a whole bunch of junk in the garage of just odds <laughs> and supplies and tanks and whatnot. And mm-hmm. um Started breeding snakes um, my late teens. I think I was 17. I bred house snakes. And nice. uh, yeah, and the rest is history. Um, you know, really enjoyed colubrids. Uh, you know, I have your book. You mentioned your book a little bit earlier. Uh, it needs a, um, it needs some kind of key for <laughs> what is and what isn't a colubrid. Cause yeah. I, that, that was the hardest part of that book for me was, um, and it's done really well. I have to give you credit. It, the the you. taxonomy and stuff is, is pretty phenomenal. And just, um, I thought it was simpler. I thought I knew what I was talking about, but wow. I read that book. It's like, ah, crap. I don't know what I'm talking about. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you had a key where it's like, okay, these are colubrids, these are colubroids, these are this, these are that, it would, mm-hmm. I'm sure people would appreciate that. But um, yeah, yeah. So there's that. Uh, as far as the bear and I are concerned, um, I didn't know about them. I didn't know it was a thing until I saw three blue individuals at a reptile show, uh, actually at a table. Um, this would have been early 2000s. Okay. Um, and they were sub-adults. They were nice blue animals. I think um, uh, it's John Michaels for Black Pearl Reptiles. Oh, yeah. Had them. Um, yep. I think he wanted about two grand for the trio, which, you know, at the time, $2,000 for anything that wasn't a ball python was just insane. Uh, mm-hmm. But I thought it was, I thought it was fair. Uh, it was also the first show where I saw the Eurodactyloides geckos. Mm-hmm. I've yep. never seen one of those before either. And it was like, what is this dinosaur scale lizard? You know, so that was really, <laughs> yep. that's a really neat show. Um, 
And I didn't see any Barons after that for a little while. It happened to go to a show and some local guy had some, some Baron eye that he produced. Um, so I bought a couple of them and uh, raised them up. Uh, just through that, ended up with a few more on my hands. There was a guy that, a couple guys that had bought a collection from somebody mainly for the ball pythons. And the collection also had two adult Baron eye and a adult trio of rhino rat snakes. And so we basically robbed those guys for those colubrids. <laughs> yeah. They didn't have, they're like, what are these worth? I don't know, 50 bucks, you know. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> so we got, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> anyway, so I had those <laughs> and uh, I didn't breed them initially. Um, I found out the hard way. You know, there's a lot of people that don't talk about the mistakes, but uh, I found out that they're pretty susceptible to temperature change. It's drastic. So, yeah, uh, the first year trying to breed them, bring them out of brumation, um, and again, I'm you know I would have been twenty twenty one, threw them right into a rack system that was warm and uh, killed my females. They just were dead the next day. So that sucked. That was a setback. Yeah, um, the male was fine because I didn't have his enclosure set up yet. Because the plan was to put him in a larger. I was going to put him in tubs to get him feeding, and then put them all yep. cohab them in a large enclosure. Um, so I hadn't got the mail set up yet, so he was fine. So I had him and anyway, just, you know, trying to, you know, replace animals and I was able to do that and breed them. Uh, but this would have been, I didn't breed them until I think 2016 is when I produced them for the first time. Um, and at the time I think I only know one other person that was really producing them. Uh, no, there's two people. I think, uh, Scott Powley and then Janelle Lopez, they both had, had produced mm-hmm. some animals. Um, but they were really kind of uncommon. No one really knew what they were. Um, they got confused a lot for rhino rat snakes. Yes. Uh, I actually had someone come up to my table. There was a couple people and, uh, I could hear them whisper and they're like, it says it's a Baron's racer, but that's really a vine snake. They don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> like, well, I mean, I hatched uh, them out, so I think I might know what I'm talking about, but anyway, um, <laughs> and I've not ever seen a blue vine snake. Not that they could no. not exist, but, um, mm-hmm. anyway, so, <laughs> So yeah, it's been it's been interesting. Um, I've had a good time with it. It's interesting to see the uh, the popularity soar, um, especially mm-hmm. in the in the Asian market. Everybody in China seems to want to buy every single animal I produce and my friends produce. Um, you know, and you don't have to wholesale them. They want to, They'll pay retail price for them, which oh, is yeah. great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, they're phenomenal. They're they're probably one of my favorite snakes. I did not think that I was going to like them as much as I do. You know, you. When you see a, a bright mm-hmm. blue snake or, you know, even just the green face is really pretty. Uh, it's just a neat looking, unique snake, but they're very personable. Um, the females can get quite large. They'll eat anything. You know, they're, they all have their individual personalities. So they're, um, I just think they're really neat. So, cool. So I was going to say, before we it, move Mike. too much further into Barons, I just want to take a quick step back um, because you, you, you know, started with the ball python and you said you, you started to really enjoy colubrids and move that direction. I'm just curious kind of what, why, what made you, you know, enjoy the colubrids more? What kind of started to shift you in that direction? Uh, was there species before Barons that really pumped you up to continue down that path? Sure. Sure. So, um, it seems odd because I love these bright blue snakes, but um, I'm really attracted to things that are high contrast. Mm. So um, being from California, California king snakes were always just one of the most incredible animals. And I spent a long time trying to find one out field herping and having no idea as a kid what I was doing. Um, so I did get a ball python to start. 
Um, but I think within six months, I went and got myself a little California king snake too. Um, I think my my goal originally with the ball python was when I saw an albino in Reptiles magazine. I thought that was just the most one of the most beautiful snakes. I thought, and I I can't deny that today. I think they're really really neat looking. Um, but by the same token, a black and white cow king is phenomenal too. The old uh, articles or the old not even articles the ads. Um, I'm not even sure who the vendor was, but seeing like the high white, the 50, 50 cow Kings, like these are, that's incredible that, that, that even exists. So, um, I never really limited myself. I did, obviously I had the one ball Python, but pretty much everything after that was mostly colubrids, California Kings, um, had some Honda and milk snakes, corn snakes, you know, stuff that was readily available, more affordable, uh, but still a lot of fun, a lot of, um, and, and, you know, still, easy to keep, easy to breed. You know, you can kind of keep kings, corns, milks, all roughly about the same way. And so that made it easy for me not having to do any super specialized setups for their care. But, um, and I still have all those today. I still keep kings, corns, milks. I love all that stuff. Uh, the species there's a sh- that, you, that you just named. I mean, there's such a variety of look, of pattern, of, of palette, right. you know, that, you right. know, if you're just saying, well, I'm just going to keep these three species well, you can keep 500 animals and no two look alike, <laughs> yep. you know? So, yeah. So yeah, yeah, I, mean, yeah, I can see where you're going there. Yeah. So, and you know, the, the market is definitely, you talk about the market, it definitely goes up and down. Um, mm-hmm. There are years when I, you know, I can't give away my cow Kings and then there's years where I can't produce enough and I can never, I have a really hard time predicting it. Every time I think I have the market figured out, I don't, um, <laughs> It's so weird, you know, you think that everybody wants these high white designer crazy looking cow kings um, and then everybody comes up looking for the normal banded black and white, yes, yes. low white, <laughs> ugly, muddy. Yeah. Great, cool. I mean, that's, I can help out with that too. But um, yeah, you're right. There's definitely a, a whole lot of looks and you, you know, with some of these king snakes, you breed the same pair year after year and you never get the same thing twice. You know, the clutches will always look different. So yeah, that definitely keeps it interesting for me and um you know, as far as monetary value goes, it, it's not a high monetary value, but uh, it's just, it's rooted in my childhood. You know, it's in yeah. the state that I live in there. It's always different. So, you know, when the eggs hatch, I don't exactly know what's going to pop out of them. And so that keeps it fun. Absolutely. You know, and we say that all the time is even though we talk about the market and we talk about the financial pieces, it's uh, rule number one is you've got to like what you're working yep. with. Or, I mean, or you start half-assing it. You yeah. start, you know what I mean? There's just things that oh, yeah. don't go well. Absolutely. You really have to enjoy it uh, and enjoy the species or you're going to burn out. You know, you end up being the, the people that are, are in the hobby for three years and then are trying to get rid of a hundred snakes, you know? And, right, right. So, no, I, I support that a hundred percent, man. hundred percent. Yeah, and, and what you're saying there, you know, um, as I became more financially stable and started to expand the collection, uh, it was kind of at the height of when the ball pythons were kind of going crazy. Um, and so I, you know, I think I had at one point, you know, 30 breeder female ball pythons and a bunch of males and this and that, and did that for a couple of years. And it just wasn't exciting. I didn't enjoy it. I enjoy ball pythons, but not to scale, not well at that kind of scale. Um, and part of it's just because of the ball python people, if that makes sense <laughs> without me really getting into it. Um, yep. <laughs> but uh and nothing against there's nothing against the snake uh i think no. all pythons are great all the morphs mutations is amazing what people can do um but that's such a 
anyway, we don't need to get into all that, but no, no you know, I, and I, I'll just, I'll just say that I think that, you know, it's being that we love Colubrid so much. I think there may be this air out there that we don't like ball pythons. That's not the case at all. I, I mean, I, there's so many of them that are beautiful. There, there's, you know, it's just not where our passions are, mm-hmm. you know, right. that that's it. Right. It's not that we dislike that animal, dislike that snake. There's certain aspects to that market that I'm not a fan of, but I can say the same thing about certain aspects of, you know, colubrid markets that, you know, and meaning, you know, certain groups and things that are just a little, but no. So, I mean, just for those listening, we're not ball python haters. That's not who no. we are. It's just not what I, you know, it's, it's not the drink I'm ordering when I go to the bar, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Right. So. I think, I think my favorite thing to hear is when I'm at a show or a pet store or something and, get talking to snakes and people are like, yeah, we started with ball pythons, but we want something that moves more or is more exciting or has more personality. And not to say that the ball pythons don't have those things, but you know, you can only have so many snakes that just kind of sit in the back of a tub. So mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway. Yep. All right. Yeah, well, before we, we leave this topic, just because it is colubrid and colubrid radio and you are yeah. talking about Cali Kings. Um, just talk a little bit about the Callies you have, and then we'll go full blown Barry and I, if you're listening. So just all, all will be well soon. Stay with us. But I'm yeah. interested in that as well. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have everything from, uh, you know, the designer, almost no black cow Kings down to these ugly, muddy, which you would basically catch in, in your backyard kind of a thing. And, uh, I definitely love both. Like, I don't know if I could pick one over the other, um, what I found is there's like the locality type guys. The vast majority of the, the locality cow kings that are kept in captivity are from Southern California localities. Mm-hmm. So you get the Marina del Rey's or the New yep. Porters, San yep. Diego stuff. And those are all really neat. Um, where I live in California, there are some morphs and mutations that are kind of specific to my area that kind of resemble some of the SoCal stuff. Um, but that's that's so that's mainly what I'll keep. So I'm, I'm sure people have heard of like the Mendota animals and Mendota black bellies. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the Mendota ghost stuff, which actually uh, a few years ago they popped out some locality albinos from that project, which is really really cool. Wow. Um, and I'm working with uh, a line of animals eight or nine miles north of Mendota, where I popped out hypomelanistic animals as well, like purpley looking, Very not nice. albino eyes, but you know reddish kind of ruby colored uh-huh. eye hypo looking animals. So um, that's kind of what I'm, I'm playing around with. Uh, there's very, very few people interested in that. So a lot of times <laughs> I'll be given up, give babies away to people that are really excited. But um, so, so that's kind of <laughs> a passion project, if you will. Um, the, the locale where the, uh, the hypo animals have originated from, it's basically a little strip of land behind a wrecking yard. So there's nice. railroad tracks on one side, a wrecking yard on the other, and it's this little strip in between 100 yards, 200 yards long, and about 30 feet wide. That's, That's it. That's, it's disked wow. everywhere. There's there's no other, I mean, so it's just this little tiny population, which is probably why the genes pop up with the way they do with it yeah, being yeah. kind of an isolated genetic uh, gene flow there, but... Anyway, yeah, so earlier, that's, that's that. Earlier, did you mention that you've not found a California king snake in the wild? Is that, that no, no, I, I did. I, I I spent a long time trying to find them, thinking that oh, I got to go. You know, you think about <laughs> I know a, a young a young person's brain isn't that great at like really deducing the <laughs> most important things. So it's like, well, how do you keep them? Oh, well, they like 
they like it this temperature, this is for the hot spot. This, so I'm going to go out when it's that warm. Right. So I'm, yeah. I'm yeah. going out in the yep. summer trying to herp, and it's like, this is stupid. It's dry. There's no snakes. I'm seeing mm-hmm. just blue bellies running around. It's dumb. And it wasn't until <laughs> I was, I think I was 16 or 17, I finally realized, oh, wait, uh, I've been doing everything wrong <laughs> and just got lucky one night road cruising. It just happened to be a good night. And I remember seeing this cow king in the road, and I ran up, and I, I grabbed it, and I held it over my head. And I'm, like, yelling like it was the <laughs> yeah. best thing ever. So cool. That would be so exciting. I mean, you know, and see, that's where it's just awesome to think about because that's one of the most common snakes in the hobby, right? That that species. But how many people have actually got to go find one in the wild? Yep. That are, oh, are that's the, the only reason I want to go to California. Yes. That would be so <laughs> like, awesome, man. Well, Zach, there literally, should, there should that's be, it. There should be two reasons. Because there's there's two king snakes in California. That's true. You got is it py- pyro or you no, got mountain the, king, right? The Zonata, Zonata, Zonata. That's it. Yeah, yeah, the Cali Mountain Eastern king. guy. Yeah, those yeah, are a little no. harder to find, though, right? Uh, well, we can talk off the air about. Oh, yeah. okay. Harder, so. <laughs> Love <Gotcha>. it. <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah. Here's so speaking of finding cow king. So my my wife, being that she's an animal person too, um, so she'll go out herping with me. And she'll flip a cow king and does nothing for her. But she'll flip a gopher snake. I think it's the it's the coolest thing ever. Oh, look at this cool gopher snake. I'm like, whatever. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. to each their own. To each their That's own. Nice. Okay. Nice. Back to Bear and I. So yes. um one one thing before we get into husbandry that, that I have thought about, and I, I tried to include this in the book, and I was like, it, there just wasn't a place to put it, but I have thought about it. I want you, you hit on it a little bit, so that's why I want to uh, get on. This snake's popularity has surged. Uh, for, for an uncommon colubrid that isn't a species that most people know about, it's one of those that most snake nerds, if you talk about it, that they if you say Baron Eye or Baron's Racer, they know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I feel like that's like the first step. Once it becomes part of the lexicon and herpetoculture and, and people know what that thing is. That's what then leads to somebody randomly sitting on their couch one night thinking, what the hell's a Baron's racer? And then they start down the rabbit hole. And the next thing you know, they end up, you know, acquiring one. Right. But like what the hell happened between 2000 and now you think that that led to bear and I becoming popular. Is, is there something about them I mean, I've thought, is this tied to rhino rats? Because rhino rats came in as this, like, mystery, mystique, I don't know, Asian rat snake. Pro exotics pushed them really hard. And then, wait a minute, there's another unicorn snake? Like, I've had some people think that there's a linkage there. Um, I don't know. What what are your thoughts on that? You know, it's... um it's a little bit complex. I'm sure social media and people using social media for, for reptile stuff has really, really helped that. Um, I'd love to take credit for the popularity <laughs> of Baron and I, but it's definitely not me. You're um, a contributor. I'll say that. Well, I'll, you know, if I'm going to toot my own horn, this is how I'll toot it. Um, I was at a reptile show and, and Black Pearl, John, John was bending across the aisle from me and his wife was at the show. And she came over and uh, Julie's a sweetheart, but she does not care for snakes. Um, mm. So it's, and it's fine. You know, they have a great marriage and they're, they're a wonderful couple, but she's like snakes stay in the garage. And yes. that's just how that goes. No big deal, whatever, which it works, works great for them. Um, 
I happened to, that was the first year that I had produced Bear and I, so I had him at the table and I had my blue male there with me to say, hey, people, this is what this is going to look like as it grows up, you know? And she saw it and she held it. She just could not get over how pretty, she doesn't hold snakes. She couldn't get over how yeah. cool it was. And she went and got John. She was like, why don't you have these? And he's like, I used to have those. You didn't, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. So that sort of John down the rabbit hole, he went and bought every adult Bear and I he could find. And John has a massive social media presence. He's an incredible business person. And so I think uh, a lot of the popularity of Bear and I is attributed to, to John and his work with social media and putting them out there and just spreading awareness because everybody knows him for Dry Marcon. So he's got a huge following for Indigos and Kribos. Mm-hmm. Any, anything else that he puts out there, people are going to know about it because they follow him for all the other crazy big stuff. So that's what I think is the big thing. And then, like I said, you know, as people who have bought them, uh, have become successful with them because they're relatively easy to keep and breed. I mean, yes. I, I tell most people, if you can keep and breed a corn snake, you can probably keep and breed a Baron's racer. So uh, apart from the size requirement, but I think that there's just uh, more people are keeping them, more people are breeding them now. And uh, again, people are way better at social media than me. And so that's kind of <laughs> how all, all the information is getting out there. So yeah, I, I got totally a fair. couple questions, I guess I want to see your thoughts on. So <clears throat> one, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because currently I don't keep rhinos or barons. Um, although it's funny because everyone seems to think that I do. I think it's because <laughs> of the whole Asian rat snake thing. It's, mm-hmm. It should be, you know, fall in there. But um, barons are a little more economical than rhinos. Is that correct? If I'm buying a pair of babies, it, are barons just slightly it, less expensive? It, it really depends on yes. on what you mean by economical. Uh, I would say that if you're going to get a pair of green barons versus a pair of rhino rats, it's probably going to be a little bit cheaper for the baron eye actually yeah, for greens. Yeah. And I'm going to say um, greens over blues. Cause obviously that's going to, right. you know, right, right, right. I, I do think the rhino rats, um, I think that they actually edge out the, the green baron eye at, at the moment anyway, from what I'm seeing online. So it's hard to say, but I think part of that is nobody wants green barons. They all want blue ones. So it kind of mm-hmm. drives the market down on the greens a little bit. Um, and but the reason I asked that is so. because I wondered if, you know, to Zach's point, whenever you said that the, you know, the rhino rats were pushed so heavy with pro exotics and whatnot, then you have barons come in. And I, cause for me, I, for some reason, I think I, I'd always remember that barons were just a little, a little more economical, you know, a little lower price point than the rhinos. And I didn't know if that was one of the things that was pushing the popularity as well that, you mm-hmm. know, Hey, you've got this horned snake that it's going to, you know, still leave a few more bucks in my pocket than the rhinos were. Um, and then the flip side that I wanted to ask is if you, if you think that one of the growth inhibitors of that species, meaning, you know, one of the things that has slowed popularity, uh, potentially if the, the rear fang piece comes into play on, you know, slowing some individuals down on moving to that species. You know, there's, so there's the, the, the Facebook Baron Baron's pages, right? And inevitably, thankfully it hasn't been recently, but it used to be almost every month some new person would join, ask about the venom, blah, blah, blah. And it just, you get a bunch of people jumping on there. Oh, it's just like a bee sting. Don't worry, this and that. And, and I always had to jump on and say, hey, look, people die from bee stings. So let's, let's take a step back. Correct. Correct. Um, there's not been, at least to my knowledge, and Zach can probably correct me, but no We're legitimate, no legitimate study on the efficacy of their venom. Uh, there's obviously, you know, sister species that are medically significant. Um, and most people, uh, I think when they get bit, aren't getting any kind of envenomation. 
Um, since we're on the topic, I, I did take a food bite once from a large female and my hand did swell up. It lasted yes. about 24 hours, localized pain. She did not hold on. It was a bite and let go. And that was it. Um, I've been bitten one other time by a big female and it was a don't F and touch me cause I'm full of eggs. Um, and there was no reaction for that bite, but I always tell people, it's like, look, you know, yeah, I swelled up a little bit. Was that because of trauma or was it because of venom? And I mean, because of how long it lasted, it lasted about 24 hours. I think it was more, potentially more venom than trauma, but yeah. I'm not a doctor. So I, you know, I don't know, but I always tell people one person on, on the page was kind of bad mouth and, Oh, the venom's no big deal. Listen that. And, but then went on to say she'd been bitten by her Aatrox three times. It's like, well, you're, <laughs> we're not who's going to listen to her. Right, listen right. to you, man. Yeah. You free handle Aatrox. You're an idiot. So Jesus. yeah, no, anyway. we can talk about venom. Um, and I this is a great way to do it too. Yeah. To, to get it out of the way before we get into the husbandry piece. Not, not this, that made it sound like we're going to push it to the side. Cause I actually do think this is important. So there was mm-hmm. a venom study done with bear and I, where they did the classic, what's called a LD 50, which is lethal. LD 50 means that you inject a venom 50, into 50 a laboratory right. mouse. Yep. And it's when 50% of the animals die. That's usually when you, you, as a, that, that's one measure that, that you say, okay, at this volume of venom, we see, a, you know, lethal effect. And you can then compare apples to apples across all different things to a certain extent, um, LD50 rates and volumes and all that. And what's really interesting about Bear and I is that for rear fang snakes, a lot of rear fang snakes, they have this gland called the Duvernoy's gland, which is what produces the peptides um, or the toxic secretions that are ultimately used for either defense or, you know, killing off prey. Or what a lot of people don't realize is a lot of snakes do this kind of pre-digestive thing where they inject the venom, not necessarily to kill the prey. They'll constrict the prey item, but they hit it with venom to start digestion externally. And then as it goes down into the stomach, that's been initiated, which then enables the stomach to do the rest of the job. And what was really interesting when they did this, when they did the study on the Baron Baron eye is that they actually had a pretty potent um, LD 50 for mice. And there was a lot of enzymatic action action with the venom. Uh, and we're going to call it venom. You could call it Duvernoy secretion, but you know, that's a semantics thing. And basically it, it, in the paper, they literally did the paper for herpetoculture because they said, this is an obscure dipsatid from South America that's starting to show up all the time in the pet trade. Let's figure out what's going on. And uh, basically it was it was for its size and for what it was, it was hot. The thing with all epistoglyphous snakes is the delivery system is not anything close to what you get with a cobra, a lapid, or a rattlesnake, a crotalid, so, or viper. So um, the thing with Baroni, though, is if they bite you and it's a feeding response and they can get those rear fangs in all of the phylodryanids, which is what this guy's a member of Dryanians, sorry. Um, in case Marco Shea's listening, cause he corrected me <laughs> on that about 3000 times, a little bit triggered anyway. Uh, <laughs> um, all of them have pretty substantial epistoglyphous fangs in the back of their, their mouth and their Duvernoy's gland is very different than other snakes and that it is 
like it, it's almost like a venom gland. Like it has these things in it called a lumen where basically there's an open area where the secretions can like fill that void. So when they bite, there's more volume of um, secretion venom, whatever you want to call it going into the, the prey. One of the, this is my, this is, this is my Tinley 23, 2023. I'm selling a book on Dipsadid's snake story. So I wanted to get a series of pictures for the book of I got tagged by a bear and I, and here's my hand, here's my hand, here's my hand. And I didn't, you know, you don't go online and say, can I get a picture? Are you getting bit by a snake? Right. Like that's the last thing we want to do. Right. So I got like a couple pictures. I, admittedly there. Thank you for the person that got bit and sent me the picture. But at the same time, they weren't necessarily like, they're not going to stop anybody from buying a Baron's racer. Mm-hmm. So I'm at Tinley and everybody's coming up to me to buy the book. And, and they're like, oh man, I got tagged by my Baron. I hold on a minute. And they get out their phone and like their hands are, it looks like they got hit in the hand with a sledgehammer. Like we have swelling up to the knuckles. Um, so a couple of them had the uh, effect where you get the red line going up the arm, um, which, you know, that is a full blown envenomation at that point. Mm-hmm. So the issue with these animals is they just don't, they are, they are slow to bite, but they, they are psychos when food's present. Mm-hmm. And you like, if you feed these things with your hands, I'm going to flat out say it on record. You're an idiot. Like, this is why we have tongs. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, so um, I think that I don't think it's wise to hold them at all if you're around prey. Uh, mm-hmm. If you've been feeding things, you got mouse scent on your hands, chick scent. You're you're asking for it. Um, and I think if you're going to get them out, you know, treat them like they're a venomous snake because they are a venomous snake. And that's my stance on it. But when they're little, like they don't really, they're not nippy. They're kind of the opposite of false water cobras. My bear and I stayed, they didn't bite at all when they were small and then they got big and they got like kind of sassy. One of our females did, uh, falsies. They're like raging psychopaths for the first year they're out of an egg. And as they get size on them, they realize, Oh, I guess I don't need to worry anymore. And they stop. So anyway, um, so, so Zach, that's my, my, my two cents on that. And forgive me, Zach, you may not know the answer to this, um, but the individuals who were showing you the pictures of, mm-hmm. um, of their hands and whatnot, did any of them tell you the stories and yeah. did they match Chris's meaning? Cause with yep. what Chris shared, it was when he got bit being mistaken for food, he was envenomized, you know, he yep. envenomated. Uh, but whenever he had the all of them were feeding hits, bites. Yeah. So it's, and that's why I was kind of getting, yep. you know, wondering is when they're just pissed, when it's just a defensive, you know, like when she had the eggs, uh, cause if I remember right, Chris, you said you had no reaction, you know, there was nothing but just the, the hit. Right. That's, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it sounds like, I mean, that's, that's the danger point obviously is, you know, anything to do with food, but if they're just angry, it, you know, it's yeah. less likely to be anything other than just teeth. So that's CCR stance on the venom, but moving as long as you're sensible, like, do I think a 13 year old needs to be working on these things? No, like here at the university, these are probably the hottest snakes we have at West Lib. Uh, and we consider them advanced. Like you can't work with these until you're a junior or senior and you've put in a certain amount of time. I know Cleveland Zoo, they treat their bear and I like they are literally the venomous snake that's on the zoo grounds. Like that's the way they treat them. So, uh, but if you're just careful and, and, and wise, you're, you're going to probably be okay. 
but don't hand it to your three-year-old to hang it, wrap it around their neck. Right. <laughs> so anyway, all right. So husbandry-wise, then let's 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 do our classic kind of approach here. So when you get a, we'll, we'll start with housing for a neonate, and we're over way up to adults, and then we'll go over breeding and feeding all along the way, all that kind of good stuff. So you get a, a neonate. Any problems getting neonates started? I've had I've had very little issue with any of my hatchlings. Uh, I probably had two or three over the course of, of producing them that just would not eat rodents uh, for whatever reason. And uh, I'm lucky I have house geckos that live on my house, so they'll usually yeah. take a house gecko for you know three or four feedings and then switch over to rodents. Um, the first year I bred them, I was trying to do frozen thawed out of the egg. Had very little success that way, uh, and had to go buy. Uh, live rodents, but as soon as I offered live, they were immediately on it. After a few feedings, they went right to frozen thawed, no problem. So, yeah, I, I think with these guys, the the pair matters because our pair here at the university that produces almost every year, the the, the little ones are nightmares to get going. We've tried, you know, we we've done everything, and we'll cover that later. But it's funny because I talk to other people. And it seems like your experience is more on the normal side. And mine, of course, is the exception. Well, they, and they me. We, we have to take into <laughs> account – well, we got to take into account how long they how, – how removed they are from the wild. Yes. When you, when you look at something like a king snake or a corn snake, yeah, those things have been basically programmed to feed for 30-plus yep. years. Right. Barron's races are not there, not even close. No. And so, yeah, you're right. There probably is a genetic factor that – might be selected for accidentally at some point, but, uh, but yeah, you're right on. Yeah, I would no, say you're right on. Of course. The, the, the only way that we were able to get ours to eat is I took a, I, I did the brown bag trip trick from like back in the eighties and nineties. So everybody <laughs> got a brown bag. I put them in a tub. I put a flipping heat mat in the tub and a thermostat. And I just basically, cooked them, <laughs> got them up to like 88, 90 because I wanted their metabolisms to just be exploding. And then it was throw live pink in for the night and then pull the pink out if they didn't eat it, wait two days. And that was what ultimately kicked all of ours over to eating. We did that um, until they took three of them under those conditions and then they went to our baby rack and now they're they're all adults and, and happy. So if you're listening, that was our little trick. But I did brained. I did boiled. I did lizards. I did uh, reptilinks. I did guppies. I did, I mean, I threw the kitchen sink at them. So, yeah. So pray you get Chris's pairings <laughs> and they just eat. <laughs> so, yeah, when anyway. I actually, when I when I read that in your book about how they were hard to feed, I thought, What's what the hell? <laughs> I was like, I've never had that issue. Like maybe mm-hmm. one or two. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. But you know, I don't know what your experience is with them. So you know, I've only yeah. have the animals I have and the people I talk to. So yeah, I don't know. But okay, well there you go. Yeah. Well, the good thing is once they get going, though they go, which is yeah, cool. yeah. So so once what they get you- going, do you move them off to a rack or, or are they in a little viv or, or what's the setup from there? So generally speaking, I'll keep them. So my room, generally speaking, where I have all my snakes is is warm enough where I don't have to really supplement the babies with heat too much. Um, 
I've never tried to like heat a baby up to the temperatures you're talking about to get them to eat. So generally they're upper seventies cause they're hatching kind of summertime. So that room yeah. is a little warmer, you know, upper seventies, maybe low eighties. So I actually keep them in little sandwich containers just till they're, you know, established real well. Um, and oftentimes, you know, if I'm selling them, they're going to get sold pretty quick. So yeah. once they're eating regularly, I don't do the, just the only a three meal kind of a thing. Um, because you could have a snake that eats three times, but it took three months. Or you could have a snake that ate three times and it took 10 days. Yeah. So for me, it's it's not how many times, it's how reliable of a feeder the animal is. So if it's a reliable feeder, you know, I'll move it out. If it's something that I'm keeping for myself, I'll generally move it up into some kind of a rack system initially. Uh, with, a, with a hide, I, I feel like that makes them feel a little more secure mm-hmm. um, and less likely to be flighty when I open tubs for feeding or water changes or whatever. Um, and depending on male or female or how fast it's growing, cause they're obviously going to be different growth rates amongst individuals. Um, maybe for about a year, keeping them in a rack cause they'll hit about, you know, two, three feet. And then, um, I've done multiple different types of setups. I've done larger, more vertically oriented setups for them, uh, more horizontally, uh, oriented setups and even just large tub systems. And mm-hmm. two out of the three, I think work really well. Um, I found the, more vertically oriented setups tend to do like they eat and do everything just fine, but they don't breed as effectively in the real tall setups uh, for whatever reason. And I'm not, I mean, I could argue that, you know, snakes don't go up and down in trees. They crawl through trees. So maybe that's what it is. And, but uh, anyway, so there's that, but I know some people like to move them right into vivariums right off the bat. And uh, I think, is it Rob Zirkle? He mentioned, he's like, hey guys, when you, get a, when you get a baby snake, this is how we keep them on purpose so we can really monitor them. It's a very sterile, we want to make sure they're eating, make sure they're comfortable before we introduce all this other stuff to them. And uh, kind of recommended that people do that the same way too. And I tell people, you can do whatever you want, you know, but if it isn't eating for whatever reason or it's always hiding or something, then let's take a step back and kind of address maybe why those things are happening. So, No, totally. So how are you housing your adults now? So, well, they're all in brumation right now, so, <laughs> uh, which is great. Um, so I have, I do have, um, since males tend to be smaller, I, I will have males in large, in large tubs. And then, um, the females I have in uh four by two by two, uh, kind of sliding glass enclosures. I have some branches in there with them and I'll do radiant heat panels as I'm learning more about lighting and the benefits of lighting, I'm trying to figure out how I can get some of the, you know, high in some UV light in there, at least in, in a small way. Uh, I don't think they need like full direct sun, but I think some UV would be beneficial, but trying to figure out how to do that without having to do all totally new enclosures. So I agree for some reason I, and maybe this is just me being silly, but I feel that green animals UV is just going to benefit them. You know what I mean? And, and maybe it's just because the whole plant piece to it, but it just it's because they like photosynthesize. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, I mean, that's a species that's that I funny. think, you know, it would be in it though. That, that's my science brain. Zach. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Um, uh, no, that'd be interesting. You know, I would love to, to get you back on, you know, at some point it, once you've had UV put on there and, and just see what changes you've noticed, yeah. you know, sure. we, it's something Zach and I talk about a lot. We give ours here at the university, they get UV. Um, the issue with UV, we do have one animal. I've talked about this before 
when you don't pay attention to the output of UV and you just pick an arbitrary bulb, um, we are, our male here at the school, um, we had him in, it was like a four by two by two, but we had uh, a high output UV bulb in there with him. Didn't realize that's what bulb was in there. It was supposed to be a shade dweller and it was only supposed to come on from like 11 to two. And instead it was coming on at like eight and going off at five. And he did develop the, the cataracts. We can't say definitively that was because of the UV, but there's definitely been documented that high output UV, if they can't get away from it, um, can be a problem. And, and so now we are, you know, we are strictly monitoring that ever since. So just know that people. And that's going to be with, you know, a lot of the species. Too. Yeah. We actually, we did the, that exact same thing with the leopard gecko here at the shop <laughs> where the, the bulb, you know, wasn't the correct bulb. Really what it was, was it, it was put into a enclosure that previously housed baby bearded dragons. You know, they cleaned uh. the enclosure out, sanitized all that, got it reset up, but didn't change out that bulb. So it was getting too much UV and, you know, started noticing it. And sure enough, it literally gave it a sunburn, you know, mm-hmm. sunburn on the head and eyes. So had to, you know, put him in quarantine, nursing back. But yeah, that's a great point to make, Zach. We talk about UV a lot on here, but um, the proper percentage of yes. UV bulb whenever you're going to try these things, because most of these species are going to be you know, either shade dwelling or uh, under canopy, that kind of thing, not full on 12 and 14% UV bulbs like you're dealing with. That's one of the, the thing that's weird about that, because where these animals live, I think a lot of people think Baron's racers are like going through jungles and they actually are most common in this ecosystem called the Chaco, which is like this scrubby, thorny, desert scrub forest where there is a lot of exposure to sun. And when you look at when they're found, this is a snake that's found usually like early morning, late in the afternoon. Uh, but it, you can find them like midday. So it's a diurnal thing. So it kind of fried my brain out a little bit, but like I understood why it happened to a couple of the other speed it, and, and it happened to three snakes. People, I don't want you to think West Liberty's cooking snake eyeballs here <laughs> but um the other two made sense to me uh but the bear and i it was a little bit puzzling just simply because they are you know kind of out in an open sunny environment uh I, but at the same time it does make sense so anyway yeah. okay so cage furnishing like inside those four by twos well Anything let me take a step back special? Go for it. Yeah. So, you know, for people that want to display snake, you kind of mentioned it right there. They are diurnal. They're day active. And if they feel comfortable, they're going to be out and about. And they are, I think they have pretty good eyesight. I mean, it, it mm-hmm. objectively appears they have pretty good eyesight. Um, and we've had a display out in kind of our living room with, uh, with nice. a pair of adults. And yeah, they definitely sit out and they sit up near the front and they watch what's going on. It's super, super cool. So, you know, for those of you that want a snake that actually is curious about what you're doing, you know, you have the option. You can go as fancy as you want, get it all planted up, or you can kind of do a bare bones or whatever. But um, I think uh, for me, it's it's all about utility. So I want to be able to get in there. I want to be able to see the animal, number one, or know where the animal is. So they, they're going to have a hide. <clears throat> and then branches, but not so many branches that they're either going to get tangled up or stuck, or I can't get them out, or I can't get in there to service the enclosure. Um, I've gone back and forth on different types of bedding, Um you know, for the babies, I'll usually use some kind of pine shavings or something, pine or aspen. 
even paper towels, uh, the adult cypress or cypress mixed with like a cocoa fiber just to kind of mm-hmm. add a little more humidity. Um, I feel like that kind of substrate actually uh, precludes, you know, mold and bacterial growth as well. It's probably just my brain. I don't know. You are science guys, Zach. You could probably throw some kind of actual the, the academia in there. does mm-hmm. actually so, fight against mold. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So there it is. But um, like I said, I want to be able to see them, but I want to provide them what at least something for them to do. So they've got to hide. They can feel secure. They got some branches they can kind of climb on, but they generally will pick a favorite spot. So there'll be some place and it's different for each individual that it's like, that's where they hang out. Like that's their perch or that's their basking spot or whatever. And that's where they just kind of chill out. So, but you nice. can get as fancy as you want. If you want to do a big planted crazy vivarium and Hopefully you'll, if you got a blue one, you'll probably be able to see it, but a green one to probably disappear and you won't know where it is unless it's just sitting there in the front. So yeah. Now go ahead, Zach. I apologize. No, you go for it, Clint. Uh, You had mentioned before kind of setting up some of them like co-having and and in, you know, pairs or groups. Are you setting up like that in those four by twos? Yeah, I've, I've kept pairs smaller, you know, for those people that don't know, females can get rather large. I mean, I've, I've got a picture somewhere of a, like an eight foot plus female that was just insanely huge. Uh, I don't know how old she was, but about a year or two after I got her, she developed cataracts and she wasn't even blue anymore. She was like gray because she was so freaking old. But, uh, you know, the average five to six foot female with like a, you know, an average four foot male, I think is okay. Uh, at least for part of the year, kind of cohab together. I think the, the most unique thing about that, well, there's two things. Let me back up. Uh, when you cohab them, definitely got to feed them separate just to be safe, um, which is not something I do with a lot of things, mainly because most things are kept individually. But you, know, you want to separate either, you know, and I, I don't pick or choose who that's going to be. You know, if I've got them cohab together, whoever I can access first is the one that's going to be pulled out to feed separate, fed separately. And then the other one gets fed in the enclosure. And um, generally speaking, once I reintroduce the other animal, make sure that they doesn't go over there and try to eat the face on the other one because it smells like a <laughs> yep. rat or a chick or whatever. But um, I think there's, a, you know, Mrs. Uh, maybe observation bias, but I think there's behaviors that you get when you keep them together that you don't see when you um, keep them individually. Um, and, you know, sister species, the Chlorosoma veridissima, I remember... Um, I've had really bad success with that species, but I really want to be successful with them. The very first pair I had, I remember that the female will come out to bask, the male will come out and look at her and like just bob his head. Um, Mm -hmm. And I never saw the head bobbing when they weren't kept together. So that was really, really interesting. Um, And I haven't noticed that with bear and I, but often, um, you know, if one of the barons is, is hanging out, the other one will kind of come find it and they'll, they'll often kind of occupy the same area. They'll kind of, be where the other one is. They like to almost like they want to touch each other. I don't know. Again, it could mm-hmm. be observation bias, but um, I don't know. It seems like if, if you have a couple together, they're going to be together wherever they are in the enclosure. So, yeah, uh, we, we, we've cohabbed a couple of the juveniles. I, well, I say we, I, I raised the bear and I in my office here, get them to like kind of bulletproof size. And then they move to the vivariums, that are out in the actual collection. And during that process, I had two that were together and I actually, I thought I had two females and I figured out that I had a pair when that magic day happened where he realized what he was and what she was. And I heard all this like crashing. It's actually this tank that was right here and turn around (laughs) and there's like, well, that that lady's trying to mate with that lady and that doesn't make any sense and pulled him out and sure enough had a pair. So uh, that was 
kind of interesting. Um, another thing that we do here that's kind of fun is we do, um, I think it's Reptile Basics, uh, the vertical hides where you take one of the black hides, flip it upside down, right, and get racks. Right. Um, I got a funny story on that one. I didn't know that they put vertical hides in our enclosures, and I went into the classroom that has the bear and I one day, and I'm tall, and, and it's a stack. So, like, the middle cage and the bottom cage, I can't see the ceiling. And those snakes were out every single day, like clockwork. Like you said, I knew where they would bask, and we actually have them in one of our teaching rooms. And I went in one day, and I was like, that one's gone, that one's gone, that one's gone. That one. I was like, oh, my God. And I got in there, and I wasn't even looking on the damn ceiling. So I'm, like, pulling crap apart, <laughs> and I'm messaging the, the grad students, like, where the hell are they? This is horrible. And then they told me we put in vertical hides. And then for the next two months, we didn't see the damn Barons racers because <laughs> they lived in those hides. They actually would um, do this cool behavior where they would put, like, the first two feet of their bodies – they just dangle it like a vine, just right down into the middle part. And for the longest time, we could feed them, um, and they would just go right up into the hide. And they'd leave to go to the bathroom and then go back up in. And then it, it, it's like it got boring. It wasn't cool anymore. And then they started using the whole enclosure. But if you switch to a vertical hide, expect not to see them for a little while because <laughs> uh, that was a rough day. Um, okay. So, yeah. Um, we want to move on to feeding because this is a fun or anything else you want to talk about with, with just general cage? Enclosure? No, I think I think we kind of covered that. I mean, like I've said, you know, you can get as fancy as you want. I think they're a snake that'll utilize as much space as you give them, but mm-hmm. will pick favorite spots. So yeah, um, you know, take it for what it's worth. I guess. Perfect. So feeding wise, you know, we kind of covered how you get the little boogers to eat once they start eating, but. If you don't mind sharing with everybody your frequency and your your food types from like a hatchling up to an adult. Sure, sure. So I know there's there's a big trend right now of this uh don't power feed and uh which just drives me crazy. I actually had a conversation with someone recently about it um back in like the the Burmese python craze in the 90s and uh we actually were talking about how that was almost like a celebrated thing to to quote power feed your snake, like, Oh, I'm going to power feed. And people were almost like, you know, egged on to do it, to get their snakes big, uh, which is a very different, um, a very different thought process than what people think of as power feeding now. Um, but barons have a fast metabolism. They really do. So, uh, I would say at minimum, you got to feed them at least once a week for the babies. I think that, uh, a bi-week, not bi-weekly, what's the twice a week feeding schedule, uh, is really beneficial for barons. I feel like they're pooping the next day or two days later kind of a thing. Uh, not that defecation should be a measure for how often you should feed something, but they just have a fast metabolism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've noticed that uh, the growth rate definitely seems to be uh, accelerated, but not in an unhealthy way when you kind of do that. So smaller meals more frequently when they're little. Um, as they grow, obviously changing the food types. When they're little, it's pretty much rodent only for me. Um, I haven't tried to do any kind of button quail or anything when they're real little. As soon as they get big enough where they can take chicks, I think um, adding chicks in the diet is really good, uh, particularly for females. Um, I think just the protein in the yolk is really helpful. Um, and I've never been one to really feed rats. Uh, I know some people will feed them rats. I think mice and chicks are really the way to go. Um, 
I have a good hookup for chicks and then I breed my own rodent. So I kind of know what's going into the rodents that I feed out. So that's always a good thing. But, um, I definitely feed my females more than I feed my males. Um, and I don't necessarily have like a fet, a set feeding schedule per se. You know, I'll, I'll generally feed, you know, at least once a week as like a, a standard for everybody. But if there's a particular snake that, I don't know, you guys probably know, you guys keep snakes. So you can look at a snake and say, man, eh, I'm not going to feed you this week. Or, oh, you know, what? I'm going to give you an extra one midweek mm-hmm. just because you just have a feeling. So kind of kind of feel it out. But I think uh, for the adults, uh, females, probably a chicken, a mouse every week is probably pretty good if they're not breeding. And then, you know, the males, you could probably feed a little less frequently. Uh, for the breeding females, especially when they're larger breeding females, um, it sounds crazy, but I'll feed them almost every other day like a small mouse throw a chicken once a week and just to maintain that, that calorie, um, the calorie count in the females, just cause it is a taxing process for, to, to build all those eggs up. And the last thing you want is a female to lay eggs and just be all sucked up and looking like she's going to die. So, yeah. um, I think the high metabolism coupled with, you know, egg production, you really got to kind of ramp up the feeding, but as you stated in your book, they will just eat. Um, yeah. and I have seen pictures of a lot of barons that are just morbidly obese and it's like, I think that's, um, it's kind of twofold. It's probably temperature related. They're not being kept quite warm enough. They're being kept in smaller enclosures where they can't move around because they will, like I said, if you give them the space, they'll move. And then it's just like anything else, like a python, you're just going to toss, you know, whatever you feed once a week. Or like I said, even feeding rats, which again, do have a higher fat content. Um, I think all those contribute to the obesity. So, yeah. No, are you tease feeding or are you drop feeding? So I, I don't necessarily need to, um, don't feel the need to tease feed because they'll almost, you know, <laughs> I've got one female and it's, it's my fault because of, well, I've got the female that because of the way her enclosure is when I go to feed her and she knows too, she knows when it's feeding day or when I've got rodents in there and I have to be really on my A game because of, you know, Zach, you're a taller guy. I'm not a taller guy. So, um, because of where her enclosure is, when I open it up, she will shoot out like a rocket and it's like face height for me. So I really have to, um, before I open her enclosure, I have to have something on the tongs ready. And even, even then probably 30% of the time she's still coming at my head. Cause I don't, I don't know. She just thinks I'm food or something, but, um, yeah, generally speaking for little guys, I just drop feed, you know, uh, just toss it in there. I don't, I don't really worry about it. And it's, oftentimes they know, they know what's going on. And then for the adults, yeah, I'll, I'll feed on tongs, just, you know, pull, either pull tubs out or open enclosures with a hook, use the tongs to feed. And, um, cause I don't want to get bit even, you know, apart from being rear fang, I just don't like getting bit. It's not fun. No. Amen, brother. Um, <laughs> it's just, you know, when you're younger and you're like, Oh yeah, it's so cool. I could take this no. snake bite. And as you get older, you're like, this is so dumb. Like no other animal <laughs> do we keep or we're like, Oh yeah, my dog bit me. How cool was that? You know? Mm-hmm. Right. So anyway, but yeah, no. I definitely, uh, you know, if if uh, if I open an enclosure and a snake isn't right there to eat it, I just drop it in. Um, and I'm usually in my snake room long enough where if they're not going to eat it, I know. But I never have that problem with barons. They always eat it. No. So. <laughs> I, I think there's a lot of truth to what you said about the, the metabolism with these animals. Um, when I was doing the research based off the field studies, there's that paper. I talk about it at length where they were studying the endangered parrots. Uh, and they couldn't figure out why these parents were like populations were crashing. So they set up nest cameras to see what was going into the nests and snakes were like 
basically eating the baby parrots like M&Ms. And the snake that was eating them the most was Baron I. So, uh, and it was eating them enough where as an ecologist, I looked at that and thought if they've got multiple Baron I going into these nests, they're all kind of together. I don't really think there's like 50 Baron I living in that one little area. I mean, it could be an aggregation because of the bait. You never know, but there's probably like one Baron I that's just one that, or a few Baron I they're just pounding the living crap out of these mm. parrot because when you keep these snakes, like Chris has said, they are, I, I'm going to say it, they're smart. They are aware. Um, I have one at, at home. It's the only blue one we have made here at the school. And he's just my, for lack of a better word, pet. He, he lives there. He will probably breed one day. But uh, he, I did the same thing you did, Chris, because while I am tall, I have snake vivariums that go up to like eight feet. So and for some unknown reason, I decided that the top enclosure was going to have this Baron Eye, and he is probably the most batshit crazy Baron Eye I've ever seen. So as soon, like, he sees my hand emerge from below, and he's just, boom, like, right there staring at it because he knows that's going to slide, and then, you know, the rodents come out. Uh, but um, I do, like, he's my, all right, the small mice weren't eaten, he gets like four or five of those. So frequent small meals, because ever since I read the, the paper on the parrots, I was like, these guys are raiding nests. I am certain in nature when they stumble onto a bird, it's done. I don't think they sit there and think I already had one of these this week. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think they're going to like eat a wren, eat a sparrow, eat, you know, whatever. So, uh, but I, I think though feeding those six foot females, a medium rat, I think that's kind of, that that that's not necessarily the way to go with them, right? And I'm not I'm not against I'm not against the equivalent of the calories of a medium rat in a yeah. in a in a week or ten day period. But um, I mean, when you think about it for yourself, I mean, how do you feel after eating a gigantic Thanksgiving meal <laughs> versus I'm going to snack all day? You snack all day, you've got energy, you're moving, you eat a yeah. big fat meal, and you just want to be a slug. Um, and yep. I think that's the way it is for a lot of reptiles in captivity. I think a lot of them would benefit from multiple smaller meals it's going to be the same caloric value but you've got so much more surface area and get metabolized faster and utilized more effectively you know you're not going to have an animal sitting in the gut of a snake that's going to potentially rot because the snake gets off a of heat or something and mm-hmm. it didn't digest it fast enough so anyway that's it's always been my thought with even most of my colubrids uh or colubrid colubroids as it were to just feed multiple <laughs> smaller meals i mean um I, I just think it's easier. I don't know. It's just me, but yeah. I think they're kind of designed for it as well. I think that probably rings true for most small to medium sized animals in the animal kingdom that they're more built for multiple small meals, you know, uh, more frequently where, I mean, if you think like large predators or even large animals that are pythons, you know, that do take a large meal, that's, you know, you have to be a large animal or more specialized to do that kind of thing because of all the downtime it's then going to give you. Uh, so yeah, I, especially racers, anything that, you know, has that racer, you know, tag to it, just that high metabolism. I mean, when you were talking about seeing pictures of obese, um, uh, bear and I, because prior to that, I was sitting here thinking, I've never seen a fat racer ever, you know, now, <laughs> oh, no. now, you know, given it in captivity, I'm sure you'd see it, but like even out in the wild, I'll stumble across some black rat snakes that aren't fat, but I mean, they're girthy, right? You know, they've, but I've, and we have tons of black racers in this area 
I've never seen one that I would even suggest is heavy. You know what I mean? They're, they're a sleek and speedy type of species. Now, given, I know we're talking different stuff here. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But just that metabolism, that body style, I think that that's what they're, what suits them. That's what they're built for. Yep. So, well, I, I think to your point more, if you think about just the ecology of, of reproduction of birds or rodents, you're going to obviously have way more fetal or young animals than you are going to have adult animals. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for people who, who know about birds, you know, if you're breeding birds, if you pull the eggs or pull the babies, the female will, re- will cycle again. You know, so if you've got a bear and it's going into a bird, a bird nest or a tree hollow or whatever, eating the babies, those parents are probably going to cycle again, lay eggs, have more babies. You're going to have, a, you know, kind of a revolving door food source, if you will. Round two. Yep. <laughs> right, right. So, and, you know, rodents are the same way. You know, if you eat all the babies, you know, they're going to cycle again. So, um, yeah, I think it makes more sense, like as, as you stated, that there's probably just more little ones around the big ones. So, mm-hmm. yep. So, breeding. I, I want to hear your strat. You mentioned that you're brewmating them right now, so I'd love to hear that because that was a hot button topic when I was trying to get out of people. Do you brewmate these things? And and some people were like, yeah, and then other people were like, no, they're from South America. It's hot down there. And I'm like, okay, like. <laughs> So I'd love to yeah. know. People what, say what? South people say South America is hot, and they've never been to South America. So exactly, it, <laughs> it goes it, like yeah. Like I have my brown muserranas, and I'm treating them like freaking king snakes because they're basically where Florida sits in, or farther south than where Florida sits in the, you know, northern. Anyway, right, moving on. Right. So uh, yeah, you're so breeding. As, as, far as, as far as brumation goes, I've I've done it both ways, or I've attempted to do it both ways. Uh, mating and not brumating. Um, I will say I've never not done at least a partial brumation, if that kind of makes okay. sense. Yep. So I've, you know, I've, I've definitely dropped them down. I mean, people probably think I'm just psychotic, but I've definitely dropped my animals down to the fifties. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for a few hours at night, because that's kind of what all my colubrids do at night anyway. Um, I'll actually put my hog nose in the garage so they get really cold, but everything else generally, I don't try to get that cold. Um. But I've also done it where I just kind of turn the heat off. And so they're going, I mean, they might be into the upper 60s, low 70s. Um, and obviously with a reduced light cycle, um, they're being triggered that way. But I think something, I think there needs to be some kind of trigger. Um, I think doing nothing isn't really going to, personally, again, I, you know, everyone has their own, uh, their own recipe for success. But I think they need some kind of environmental trigger, whether it's temperature or light or both. Um, and obviously a lack of food and then an increase of food. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'll generally, I don't usually brumate them as long as everything else. So it's a usually a shorter brumation. So five or six weeks as opposed to like the two and a half, three months, I'll do everything else, which some people think that that's long for king snakes, but I go out and find them in California. So I know when they're active and I know when they're not. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're not active November to March basically. So uh, anyway, that's again, I don't need to, derail myself there but uh wake them up i'll generally um and i do this with most of my colubrids i'll generally wake the males up first so i get the males going mainly so they go through a shed cycle sooner than the females uh because the last thing i want is a female to be ready to breed and the males in a shed cycle and doesn't want to breed that's a great point Um, so i'll wake the males up um and it might only be a week or two in advance kind of a thing 
kind of, and, and I do it slow. So I, I learned, like I said, early on, I learned I can't just heat them right up. So I'll take them from wherever they are. I'll kind of put them in, you know, and I have them in smaller enclosures while I'm brewmating, right? I don't have them in big, huge enclosures. Um, I'll move them all back into the snake room, kind of let them acclimate to that temperature, which is, you know, usually 15, 20 degrees warmer um, than where they've been, you know, but I'll move them in the morning so it's cooler and then they kind of warms up throughout the day. And I'll do that for about a week before I kind of bring them back up to their, their more operating temperatures, if you will, and then introduce food. I mean, you could introduce food, you know, the day you heat them up because I have, but usually it's about a week after I get them nice and warm, I'll, I'll start introducing food. And I'll generally like really hit the females hard with food. Like I said, you know, three times a week, small meals, um, and just kind of see how it goes. I oftentimes wait for that first shed out of a female before I pair. Um, oftentimes, but you know, in recent years I've just been, well, she's been up for two weeks. Let's put a male in so I don't miss any kind of anything. Um, so I definitely have had other colubrids or, Again, I, it's so hard for me not to call them colubrids. Just go ahead. Me, Zach. You <laughs> All right. me. Okay. So I definitely have had, you know, the, the classic, the classic, oh, she shed, we got a breed, and then, oh, she shed again, I'm going to have eggs later. I definitely have had females either skip that, uh, that pre-ovulation shed. I've definitely had females skip the post-ovulation shed. So um, I don't watch the sheds as intently as I used to, but definitely if they're feeding, if they've got good body weight, I'll put them together. I don't want to miss, you know, breeding cycles. I'll pair them up for, I don't know. I'll be honest. I'm kind of lazy. So I'll put them together for a week and then separate. Yeah. Or if I'm cohabbing, then it doesn't really matter because they're just together. And I just kind of watch the behavior, watch the body language. And um, I don't always see them breed. Uh, certain years, it's like, oh, they're breeding. And then there's been years where I never saw any interest apart from them just hanging out and got eggs anyway. So um, I'm not. Again, I don't want to bash ball python people. Oh, I got five locks from this female. Like it doesn't, I think they could do it in just one and done. I think yep. if they breathe, they're going to do it. So, um, and then I do, like I said, I, I really want to make sure that female gets a lot of calories. So, um, not in an unhealthy way though, of course, and it, it's going to be different for each female, but I want to make sure she's got the, the support to, to build those eggs. And, um, one of the hardest things I've had to deal with was actually getting females to lay where I want them to lay. <laughs> yep. Uh, I don't know if you've experienced that. I've experienced not, this. But, um, it doesn't seem to matter. It used to be, I'm going to put this huge hide box. that has got the perfect moisture and it's got the right heat. And she's going to lay in there and she'll lay in the opposite end of the enclosure. It's like, well, that doesn't work. Okay. What am I going to do? And there was one year where I was like, screw it. I'm going to make everything exactly how a lay box is. So it doesn't matter where she lays. It's just a gigantic lay <laughs> box. It'll be fine that way. Um, a friend of mine actually in Florida, uh, John Loman, I, I got to look at his snakes uh, this year and he's got a, he's got a bunch of bear and I, and he has in his enclosures, he actually has egg boxes that are like in the bottom of the enclosure. Like it's almost like they're buried in the substrate and he has really, really good success with that. So I'm, That's I'm actually going to, I'm going to try that this year. He does that for his um, his postillanotis, the Friday next postillanotis. Yep. He does that, and for his um, his spilotes, the tiger rats. He does them all that same yep. way. And it seems to work really, really well. So um, I want to give that a shot and see if that maybe facilitates things a little more effectively. Maybe it, an egg box being up above the substrate just just is weird for them. I'm not sure. So um, yeah, then you know, get eggs and then. Um, I've done both in an incubator and just kind of ambient room temperature and it's 
not a whole lot different as far as the the hatch rate. I'm not sorry, not hatch rate. The the incubation duration. Um, it is. I found it to be kind of long, anywhere from like 90 to 110 days. Um, I've talked to people who have hatched them out at like eight, 60 days, um, which just seems crazy to me. Uh, but they were also cooking them at like 87, 88 degrees, yeah. um, which just seems way too hot. Also, uh, the babies looked fine, ate fine, were were totally healthy. It just, I just, that's not my style with colubrid type snakes. I like them low and slow, and then mm-hmm. anyway, that's that's the way I go. And then you know after. After they hatch, um, I generally, you know, I'll sex them immediately, which some people don't like, but I can use like the most minimal amount of pressure with the out of the egg baby to sex them. I know what it is. I don't have to sex them again and then, uh, set them up and go from there. What's a typical clutch size out of Barron's? Man, my, so my very first clutch was 12 eggs. Um, but I would say that they probably average like, mid-teens to low-20s, somewhere in there for, like, a, a regular female. I did hold the record for a while of the biggest clutch, which was 29 for two years. And then uh, I had a guy beat me out. I think he had 31 or 32 fertile wow. eggs. So, um, yeah. Yeah, his female made sense. His female was massive. The female that I had that laid the 29, I was shocked. Um, <laughs> that's, the one that, that's the one that bit me. She was like, don't effing touch me. Um, she was not comfortable. <laughs> she, <wasn't laughs> she, was, she was, uh, I mean, she was literally a stuffed sausage full of eggs and she laid on, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. It was, um, she, I think she laid 23 or 24 on her own and just was exhausted. It took her over 24 hours to lay that, that number of eggs. And she had all the other ones down at her vent. She couldn't push them out. So I was like, all right, it's been another five or six hours. She hadn't laid another egg. I was like, she's just exhausted. So, um, I was able to just gently palpate them out. They all hatched. Um, but man, she did just wiped her out. So, bet she looked like a deflated bike tire. <laughs> oh, she looked terrible. She looked yeah. super terrible. And mm-hmm. she got kind of the you know people will talk about like the green tree pythons, the hormonal color change. She was a green animal, but she had like this aqua tint to her while she was gravid that time, which is kind of interesting. I don't know if That's it was cool. due to the fact that she was so bloated, full of eggs, or if it was just a hormonal thing. But anyway, that was nice. kind of cool. Yeah. So you, you, you kind of lead me into my next question. I, I guess before I ask, is there anything else on the breeding or cycling that we want to make sure we touch on? So well, I so I know a guy here in California who's able to double clutch his barons every year. Ah. I have never been able to double clutch. I have tried my darndest to freaking double clutch. I cannot make it happen. So I don't know. I don't think I've double clutched. No. Yeah, and and he when I talked to him about it, he looks as surprised about me not being able to do it as I am about him being able to do it. Um, but he's the only person that I know of that's got animals double clutch. Um, so I, guess I didn't hear many it. people telling me that when I was talking to everybody in right. England back then. Right. That's, that's like I said, he's, he's the only person I know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how many. I think he has three or four adult females. And I think he says most of them will double clutch for him every year. Interesting. Um, yeah. So it's, 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 yeah, definitely unique. Um, it would make sense to me that they could, but uh, yeah, I have, like I said, I haven't been able to try it. Uh, the other thing is I know people have gotten eggs kind of different times of the year. You know, generally speaking, we're breeding, you know, in the spring. I usually get eggs kind of late summer. They seem to hold on to their eggs a little longer than other species. You know, usually my king's corns and milks, I'm going to get eggs, you know, May, June, maybe into July. But it seems for whatever reason for me, the baron, I usually lay their eggs later on in the year. So 
sometime late July, maybe in August, and then I get babies hatching out kind of after that. But um, there's definitely people who are like, oh, yeah, I bred them in December and I got eggs in March. And so I don't know. I, I guess there's more ways to, to bake a cake than I kind of leading into but that's that's the timeline for me they are the yeah they're the last snakes that we have in fact um our female she usually she's probably in the we only have one female that we've been able to produce i don't know what's the deal with our other female and uh, to be honest we tried like two years in a row to get eggs we didn't and i was just like f it we're done (laughs) so because our we have one that's high black. She's really cool looking, okay. um, and and she's the one that's produced. But they are sneaky because they 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 definitely like you know they're gravid. I'm not saying that you can't look at them and say that they're gravid, but for a dip sided, like compared to the Musaranas, the tricolors, the false water cobras, they're in my opinion anyway. They hide their gravidity better than anybody else. Uh, and we don't really get them out and, you know, mess with them. And so we've, we had a clutch get dropped and we, they just didn't see it. It was in the hide. It's the one freaking time they decided to lay their eggs in the hide box. Cause ours does the Johnny Appleseed just eggs everywhere across the, the cage. <laughs> um, but this year I, I was on the students and everybody, I was just basically like, all right, second to last week in July, second week of August, we're checking her cage every single day. And uh, sure enough, uh, we got them this time. So, nice. yeah. Anywho. But no, that's that's the timeline for me. We pretty much do things exactly the same. <laughs> so, there you go. There Excellent. You go. And I was thinking, where did that come from? And it probably came from me asking you questions back in the day. So there you go. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, there you go. Anywho. All right. Well, well, final thing I feel like we need to talk about is just – the different color phases because that was my next, that was exact question I wanted to go to. I hear about these blues. I want to know, is this recessive? Is this a lineage thing is, you know, where do they come from? What do we got? Well, I'm going to, I'll take a step back. I won't go into blues yet. Um, Zach, you mentioned in your book that you're not sure about the, the pattern of inheritance for the Browns. Uh, I am like 100% certain that Brown is a dominant trait. There we go. I have not, <laughs> I haven't heard anybody that has bred a brown not got browns uh, mm-hmm. right off the bat. Um, and I haven't heard anybody that has bred not brown animals and got brown animals. Yeah. So breeding either greens together or greens and blues, whatever, and getting brown. So um, from my experience, from everybody I've talked to, it appears to be a dominant. Um, yeah, whether that came from some people in Europe. There were some people in Germany that I was talking with who indicated that they have bred um, green with brown and got like almost like a a, a blending, like a a, a, a a mossy brown snake. Uh, so it could have been polygenic or something, but they could also have a completely different line of browns than we do. I mean, we don't know the genetic mechanisms of these damn things. Right, so, right. Anyway, I, I, I um, think it might be. I think it might be possible too that you talk about your green female being super, super dark, heavy black. Uh, it's possible that their animals they're producing greens that are just high, high black. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know. So it's no, it's totally. hard to say. 
As far as the Blues are concerned, up until probably a year ago, I was absolutely convinced that blue was a recessive mutation. I was convinced. Um, I'd seen people getting blues from green to green breeding on the roughly the same ratio you would expect out of a heterozygous to heterozygous animal breeding. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first breedings were a blue animal, blue male bred to a female that was green that was produced from a blue animal. And I got roughly 50-50 every time I bred them. Like, all right, so that's in line with kind of a visual to a heterozygous breeding. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then um, I had never heard of anybody getting green animals from breeding, uh, breeding blue to blue up until recently when, again, this guy in Florida, uh, you know, John, his buddy who had the 33-whatever clutch, uh, he sent me pictures. He's like, hey, man, uh, I just got greens from a blue to blue breeding. And I was like, mm-hmm. no, you didn't. There's no way, man. Send me pictures. I'm like, crap. Okay, those are definitely green. Uh, that's not right. And he held on to them. He held on to them for a couple of years, and they all turned blue. But they had the characteristic. They were green on the body, had the yellow on the throat. It wasn't as yellow as, you know, a, a typical to green. Talk a little bit about that real quick. Like, when you sure, get a little sure, one, sure. how do you know so, you have a blue and a green? So, because they have that yeah, weird so color. Standard, the standard... And and when I started breeding them, there was no, there was no metric. It was <laughs> hopefully you get some that are blue and maybe not. And so I, I went into breeding assuming that it was recessive, just because I I wanted to have some kind of this is what I'm testing, even though I'm not you know scientist per se. But I'm going to assume it's heterozygous, and we'll see what happens. And so my first clutch hatches, and I'm in the best lighting I can find, and I'm holding every baby together like okay. <laughs> These all kind of look like this. These all kind of look like this. Okay, what is the difference? And I've got a picture on my Instagram, and it's me holding a green and a blue, and the blue is not very blue. Um, But obviously, compared to the green, it looks looks different. But one has a very white kind of cream chin, and the other one has a very, very yellow chin. And it's a little bit misleading because I picked the green animal that had the most yellow chin to show the comparison. But generally speaking, uh, from my experience, if if you're not sure... If it's got a bunch of yellow on its like chin and neck, it's probably going to be a green animal. Probably. Again, up until recently, where now it's like <laughs> I really don't know. So, um, and the odd thing is, again, it's he's not breeding. These breedings aren't blue to green animals or green to green. It's very, very blue animals to very, very blue animals producing green stuff, and uh, the similarities to true green animals are so close that it's really, really hard to say without knowing what the parents are. So I still believe that it's probably a recessive thing, but I think there may be two different lines where you have exactly yep. yes, 100% where you where have, I was going to go with that, yeah. Well, and, and I, I, you know, previous to this, I thought that there was probably like a dominant line of blue and then also a, a heteros or a recessive line of blue. Um, but now I think it's potentially two different lines of yep. blue that are, that are actually compatible uh, only because he got a clutch where they all hatched out looking green and then bred those animals to different blue animals and got a mix where some were obviously blue and some had that weird green tint. So I think, again, I'm not a geneticist either, but either it's lines that are compatible and allelic but have different um, phenotypes, at mm-hmm. least to start, mm-hmm. or uh, it's all the same and there's other contributing genetics at least early on, that contribute to a different phenotypic look. Um, I know we're using big words here, but obviously they just look different, but then they turn blue. I'm not sure. I don't want to sound all pompous. I think it's it's disingenuous 
for anybody to say they really like we truly understand it as it, when I was try, like when I was writing this book, I knew that the one thing that I would get flamed on was when I started talking about the morphs and the genetic mechanism. Um, and I, I did take a very conservative line with the Baron eye and basically was like, we think we know, we may know, we don't know, we do know. So, you know, I wrote it like a scientist. I basically sure. put every freaking possibility out there um, and didn't wet myself to one. Uh, but, um, yeah, I, I actually like the idea of multiple lines of blue. Hang That's on. And what if you, it was sounding like. Yeah. yeah. And if you look at the blue animals, because I looked at a lot of photographs of blue animals, I didn't know origins for any of these things. Right. But there's definitely a look with the blue where there's like a, a, a light sea foam blue and then there's yep. this like dark turquoise blue and i i have a hard time accepting the genetic mechanism is going to make both like it 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 because it, it, you would expect there to be like a continuum from the sea foam to the turquoise and it seems like you get the dark or the light but there's very little intermediate now there's a couple like there's a picture of the animal in the book where, where it's um it's a turquoise green backed thing, whatever the hell that is, right. you know, which is kind of in the middle there. Uh, but I, I, I think working out the genetics of these is something that is going to be fun to watch people do over the upcoming decades. So right. you guys, do you think the blues are like a form of exanthic? I mean, in the re- and I never even thought of it before until you just mentioned that the when you're looking at these babies, you're looking at this yellow on the chin. You're talking about a green animal, and then I'm like, okay, well, if we wipe out yellow on a green animal, I mean, all right, what what's possible, you know, to, to be left behind? Thus That's blues. So, you know, without obviously doing any kind of genetic test, uh, if there even was one, it that's basically what's going on. I think. I mean, mm-hmm. what col- what primary colors make green? Right. Uh, it's blue, blue and, and yellow. yellow and yellow. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, as as far as your point, Zach, is you know the next decade or so, I think what needs to happen. And, and again, the reason I still kind of maintain my stance on it being likely a recessive mm-hmm. is that people aren't producing, you know, you're not getting greens, like actual, again, if you keep them to adulthood, you're not getting green animals from blue to blue pairings like you don't. Yeah. Uh, I don't know anybody that has. So it's either so dominant that you just don't or it is a true recessive and that just you just don't have that wild sure. allele in there to make it green, but that then requires people to hold on to their animals until adulthood. Um, and I think the trend recently has been, at least in the last five years or so, everybody wants blues. Everybody's breeding blues. No one's breeding the greens. And I think if we did more breeding with green animals into blue stuff uh, or into blue stock, as it were, we might answer some of the questions. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, but you look at, so Dan from DM Exotics, he had a, a blue animal bred to a green animal and everything hatched out green. And all those animals to adulthood were green. Uh, in fact, I, ha- I have one. So to me, that says that that female wasn't carrying any kind of blue trait mm-hmm. or that blue was just an anomaly. We're going to find yeah. out because I'm going to pair her with the blue animal this year and see what happens. But um, I fully expect there to be blue animals in that clutch because her sire was a blue animal, but again, we don't have, again, everyone, you see it with a lot of things. As soon as an albino or a piebald (laughs) pops up, everybody wants to chase that and nobody looks at anything else. And, um, 
you know, this isn't this is not me bashing ball pythons, but I remember when pastels first came out, they were incredible. Just bright yellow animals. Even adults were really pretty. And now most pastels, even when they're babies, are kind of ugly. And so people are breeding for quantity and not quality. Mm-hmm. And I and I've often told people who are keeping barons and actually have a good head on their shoulders, like we need to really focus on breeding for quality. And like you mentioned, there's like this dark kind of turquoise blue or the seafoam green or the sky blue. It's like, let's start isolating that and really breed for those. So it breeds true. Um, and then we can say, Hey, yeah, these are going to be this color and these are going to be that yep. color. And, right. um, but again, that just takes people that are dedicated and want to, you know, put 40 or 50 barons in a room and play around. So, and that's fine with me. That's a great plan. Yeah. In my opinion. <laughs> what are your thoughts on, um, the animals that have a lot of black in them? You mentioned that they might just be a green with a lot of black. I I, yeah. I like that look. I might be the only person on earth that likes that look, but um, the 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 more I don't know. It's it seems to be you got the greens, you got the blues, you got the browns, which have gotten a fair amount of attention. But then there's these animals that have a higher amount of black, and and you know every now and then an incredible one comes out like that brown black oh, yeah. brown yeah yeah thing yeah that was crazy. But yeah. Just any we idea didn't, on we, that? Didn't, we didn't even touch on the striping. Um, no, we didn't. Actually. Some barons are striped and some aren't. Um, <laughs> the original pair that I bred, the male was striped and the female was patternless. And I got everything in the clutches out of them. I got full stripes. I got totally patternless animals. And I got some that were kind of half and half and half. So I never really tried to dig into like what was actually going on with that. But um, I rarely see patternless animals anymore, which is kind of odd. Uh, as far as the black tipping goes... Um, I guess it could be. I mean, I'm sure that there's at some point going to be a, a full on melanistic animal that pops up. That's just the law of large numbers that somewhere there's going to be one. But I think it's just like anything else, like with the Dalmatian spotting and crested geckos, I think you can kind of breed for black tipping or even like a hunter and milk snakes for that matter, where they tried to breed the black out to get the more tangerine looking animals. Um, I'm kind of an all or nothing guy when it comes to that. So I either want like it to be really clean or I want it to be just dirty nasty drug through the mud yeah <laughs> i don't like i don't like the in between where it's kind of like yeah i kind of think i want to be this and i'm not yeah. it just drives me crazy so um I, well, i'm not like a crazy old man yet but anyway i think you know, <laughs> what, I, I think you know what i'm saying yeah but uh i i think it's um it's probably polygenic thing i think that yep. um i don't think it's necessarily uh kind of determined by one one set of alleles or anything like that but um who knows? Maybe it is. It's hard to say, but, uh, you know, I've got some blue animals that are definitely high, high black, if you will, or have a lot of black tipping and very different from anything else I've had, but the animals they came from, you know, the, the male wasn't, but the female definitely had a bunch of black tipping on her and her babies did too. Not all of them, but some of them did. So, cool. um, I think it's just a, you know, just a polygenic thing. I think it's just either it does or doesn't. You can kind of select for it if you want, but I don't know. No one's trying to do that right now. Again, yeah. everyone's chasing blues. So, well, there you go. Do you, do you think that these things are ultimately going to prove out to be like line bred? Uh, like you, you just happen to get the two animals together that produce the dark stripe, or you pro- get two animals together that produce the vanishing pattern or no stripe. Um, but yeah, if you don't necessarily meet, mate those two animals together, you're not going to necessarily get that look. Like with false water cobras right now. I, I like there's high black. 
I hate calling anything in North America that's got a lot of yellow in it a hypo because there's an actual freaking hypo out of Europe. So I will not call it that. I'll die on that hill. But anyway, but like you can breed two individuals and get everybody's high yellow. But then you bring in another animal that's high yellow, breed them together, and you just get a bunch of like kind of normal brownish looking snakes. Do you think that's a case with these guys or not necessarily? Uh, I've only bred the one pair, so I can't really speak to this at all. I just went off of what people told me. Right, right. And I've only ever had the one patternless animal. Uh, mm-hmm. Everything else I've had has always been striped. So, um, but based on, and again, I shouldn't do the study of one when we're talking yeah. like an entire species, but I will have to for this example. But, you know, her clutches were always a mix. It was either it was striped, patternless, or, or everything in between, partial stripes, you know, two-thirds stripe kind of a thing. Um, but it seems to be when you breed the animals with the vertebral stripes, you're going to get vertebral stripes. Vertebral stripes, yeah. I haven't seen any that come out patternless from stripe-to-stripe breedings. Whether that's a totally individual gene separate or it's a polygenic thing, um, I tend to think that with it being a faster snake, for lack of a better term, that the longitudinal stripes down the body kind of make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like our North American racers have the stripes. Um so that the patternless is more of an anomaly, like the striping is more normal, quote unquote, if you will. But uh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think someone needs to dig up some of the patternless ones I hatched and sold a long time ago and start trying to focus on that a little bit because cool. people definitely ask about it. Um, not nearly as much as, hey, I want heavily striped animals, but, you know, it, it, again, it's everybody has their own, you know, flavor they like. No, cool. Well, anything we're, – we're creeping up on two hours now. So any other final thoughts on Bear and I that we wouldn't have talked about that you just feel the need to to get out? Uh, I will say one thing, and it might piss somebody off, but um, don't go spend over $3,000 for a yearling Blue Barons because that's, uh-huh. that's more than an Eastern Indigo, guys. Um, mm-hmm. I think the market's gone a little crazy with the pricing. Um, I think people are uh, – I think people are asking too much. I mean, the market definitely is there for it, but I think people need to kind of be realistic and, uh, you know, save your money. Don't, don't go spend three grand on a, on a yearling blue barons. Again, it makes it sound like an old man and that I hate (laughs) free market economy. I don't hate free market economy, but people need to like take a step back and think about like, what are you actually spending money on? Um, and with that being said, you know, uh, don't buy animals just thinking you can breed them and sell them. Because that's a terrible, like we talked about, you got to keep and breed what you love. Uh, but it's really hard not to keep and love Barons Racers. Uh, yes, they're awesome. It. They're really, they really great. So, yeah, if you're looking for something different, uh, there it is. Even the greens, man. Get some greens because, uh, again, it's a lower investment financially to start. Uh, and there's no difference in their attitude versus no, I love our colors. Greens. So, um, get your greens, have fun with them. And, uh, yeah, go from there. Well, we got to make sure people are producing the greens because we don't want to lose the flipping greens. Like, right. not, I don't know if that will ever happen, but at the same time, we've said that about other things and it flipping happened. So, right. Um, and I don't know, you know, we're getting to a point now. I know that there was some imported animals, I don't know, five or six years ago. And I, I really like regret not getting any of them. Because uh, I'm pretty certain, like everything in the country is all pretty interrelated right now. Yeah. Um, 
So anybody who is breeding and breeding blues, it would very much benefit you to grab some greens from somebody just to try to strengthen your gene pool a little bit. But, uh, but yeah, I I think the greens will be around um, inevitably at some point. Cause again, I mean, it's hard not to like that snake and people like green snakes. Yeah. Well, this was, I have one question being that this was bears that I have to ask here. Sure. So, and this is important. Which is the superior snake, rhino or baron eye? Oh, baron's hands down. (laughs) You know, I didn't ask this. I was literally thinking I'm not going to go there, but I'm happy you did. So go. (laughs) It's it's you're really kind of comparing apples and oranges. Okay, it's not really not the same. You got a snake that likes it cooler, almost wet. I wouldn't say wet, but high humidity versus a. I mean, the area, the area where barons are from, I kind of call it like a jungle desert. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't been to the Chaco region, but there's parts of Peru that I've been through that I think very much uh, are similar. And it looks, it's literally, I don't know how to describe it besides it's a jungle desert. Um, and then it's different. You know, rhino rats are very shiny. Barons tend to be a little more matte. Barons are larger. Uh, from my experience, rhino rats tend to be nippier, even as adults. Uh, the babies on barons are much easier to start from my experience. Sorry, Zach. Um, the rhino rats usually want fish, so it's, it's much harder to get them established and going. Um, is there, you know, is there anything wrong with rhinos? No, but if you're going to pick between the two, pick the one that gets bigger is bright blue and eats rodents. So (laughs) I don't know. It's an easy easy win, but I've had them both. I have them both. They're great. So, I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not bashing rhino rats, but Honestly, Barons, we we love right. both of them here on the show. Yeah. It just comes down to we hear this bickering between people all the time on those two species. So you got to stir that pot just a little. Yeah. I don't know. Like I said, just a little. we saved it for last. Really, you can't really <laughs> compare them again. It's apples to oranges. I mean, if you were going to compare two different type of phylodryanae, is that right? Phylodryanae? Phylo- yes. There you go. Okay. Boom. It's a tribe. You're going to so compare two mean. of those. You could, I mean, that's a more equal playing field, but you really can't compare a rhino with a barons. I mean, they, superficially kind of look the same but they're not so you it's it's no. an unfair comparison yeah uh this you you all can't see it but the old baron eye tank actually has two rhinos in it now in my office and one of the things that i've noticed about and i think it is just this pair because i've listened to podcasts about rhino rat snakes justin smith's gonna listen to this hi justin we get in the argument all the time about the superior unicorn snake in our chat uh, about once every two months it pops up uh, but I thought, you know what, I'm going to get rhinos again. Cause I got rhinos and I wasn't really into them. So I shipped mine to Justin. Um, and I had an opportunity to get them again. So I thought, okay, I'm going to give them a solid go. And they're in this vivarium. I don't see them. Like, I don't know if it's just too much activity in this room or whatever, but I gave them a bunch of cork tubes. They live in those cork tubes or underneath. The one is kind of weird. It lives under the water bowl. Um, and I'll, I drop feed, and they come out, they eat their mice, and they go back. But when I had Baron Eye in there, I saw the Baron Eye, like, all day, every day. <laughs> like they were just, once they got used to me and realized, you know, he's not a threat. Because there for a little while, they weren't coming out. But once they got, you know, they figured it all out, um, they were fantastic. Like, they just yeah. were always out in the open. But I've listened to other people who have said their rhinos do that. So I don't know. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> the- the very first rhinos I had, I kept them 
without any cork, and it was mostly just like pothos plants. Mm-hmm. And because of the way they would like hang out in the pothos, I would see them. But as soon as I kept them not like that, where they had like actual hides or like you said, cork tubes, never see them. Okay. And well, it might be that the humidity just isn't high enough and they want to sit somewhere with higher humidity. I don't know. But yeah, I just, they're definitely way more secretive than the barons. Yes. So there you go. So if you want a big display snake, a horn on its nose to look like the petiole of a leaf, um, that's blue. There you go. And the green ones, like we've said, we're, we're fans of those as well. And the browns, I haven't kept the browns, but I'm getting browns um, next year, I've decided, because why not? So, all right, Excellent. cool. I know that Bear and I will be a part of my collection as long as I have a collection. That's for damn. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, this was utterly wonderful. Um, so, thanks, Chris. Well, thanks <laughs> for having me. I appreciate it, guys. Yeah. Appreciate you coming on. No, we waited a long time, and the wait was worth it, so... I'm happy that uh, you were willing to come on. If people want to find you, want to talk to you about Bear and I, or want to talk, you know, your locality and, and your high white Cali King projects and everything else, where do they, where can they find you? Uh, well, I've got a Facebook page that I never use and an Instagram <laughs> that I rarely post to and a TikTok that I don't know how to use. Um, <laughs> but they're all, uh, all sharpshooter <laughs> reptiles. Okay. Very good. So hit me up there and um, I'll do my best. I did have twins born in June. So a lot oh of my, my time goodness. is spent up. It's been amazing. It's been amazing. Uh, but it does make uh, the, the snakes kind of took a little bit of a backseat to the boys. So, uh, but for good reason, you know, they'll, yeah. they've been growing, they've been growing up going to reptile shows. I mean, they've already been to, I think, four or five shows and they're only six months old. So, oh my goodness. Uh, it's, it's pretty a, it's cool. But yeah. Thing. So, Again, my time is a little bit limited, but I, I'll do my best to get back to you and and uh, try to help you out. So, well, thank you for giving us two hours. If you have twin boys, that was that was quite a commitment. So, thanks. Well, thank my wife. <laughs> yeah, tell your wife thank you as well. <laughs> okay. Okay. Sweet. Well, if you want to find me um, by now, if you've listened, you know where to find me. But if this is your first time, uh, I'm Dr. Zach Loafman. So you can find me at Dr. Crawdad on Instagram, Zach Loafman on Facebook, and then zloafman at westliberty.edu. Uh, if you want to do the email, always looking for grad students, always looking for undergrads, uh, lots of snakes. I have it in the books to teach snake biology next spring. I'm going to st- spend this entire year prepping for that course. So uh, that should be a good one. So, yeah, if you're considering college, West Liberty, not Liberty, West Liberty, um, look us up. So, that's where you can find me. Uh, where can we find you at, Clint? All over the place. <laughs> All right. On Facebook, you can find me personally, Clint Bartley. Uh, you can also reach out to us on the Metazotics page. Um, on Instagram, it's Metazotics LLC. Uh, check us out on our website, metazotics.com, or email me at metazotics at gmail.com. Okay. And thank you to the network. Uh, Merlia Python Radio Network. Uh, we're happy and proud to be a part of the network. This is probably our last episode we're going to record in 2023. So it's been a good year. Clint and I have lots of plans. You guys, yes, we do. <laughs> yeah, listen. There'll be some changes in 2024 that'll probably be for the better. So with that being said, whatever time of day or night it is, I hope you're having a good one. Later. Later.